To see the truth of it, you just have to look at a country like Japan or China, where these are non-dairy consuming countries, and, and they really weren't eating much meat. You know, meat was a kind of a flavoring for the rice and noodles and vegetables and so forth. And, and back in 1980, diabetes was rare in Japan. It was between one and five percent of the adult population.、Uh, McDonald's came in, fast food chains came in, meat came in in a big way, and cheese and dairy started to follow.、Uh, some of the people in Japan initially, and then China afterward, started to say, "Okay, we need to drink milk so that we're strong, like Americans are." And what they've gotten is diabetes rates went up to now 11 to 12 percent in Japan by 1990. Um, diabetes is massive now in China. Cardiovascular disease—I'm talking heart disease—huge in China, and it's not because of rice. That's Dr. Neil Bernard, and this is part two of the Best of 2017 edition of the Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What is happening? Happy New Year! Happy New Year! I can't believe it. It's 2018 already. I don't know what it is, but I really believe that as you age, as you get older, time accelerates. At least that's the way it feels to me. That is my experience. That is my truth. I don't know if it's true,、uh, but I cannot believe that we've already gone all the way through 2017 and we're into 18 already. In any event, welcome. To the show, to my podcast, the program where I endeavor to have long-form, in-depth conversations that matter. At least I hope they matter with the most compelling thought leaders across all aspects of positive culture change. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for spreading the word to your friends and on social media. And welcome, welcome to part two of my annual Best of Anthology series. Where I feature excerpts from some of my favorite conversations of 2017, and the idea behind all of this is to hopefully provide you with a little inspiration to set the right mood, to、uh, create the right mindset, to help you reflect back on 2017, and hopefully better contemplate the year ahead. To catapult you into January a little bit more informed, a little better motivated, perhaps a little more inspired to take your health and your well-being. And your life to the next level.、Uh, this is my way of just saying Happy New Year, of saying thank you, thank you for investing in my work, thank you for、uh, being an incredible audience for this show, for honoring all of the guests that I've shared with you, and for implementing their work into your lives.、Uh, I love you guys, and I promise to continue raising the bar in 2018. If you've been with me all along, then this part two in a two-part series will hopefully. Help bring some of my guests' insights back into the forefront of your mind as you contemplate your trajectory, your hopes, your dreams, your goals heading into the new year. And if you're new, if you're brand new to this program, maybe you just stumbled upon it accidentally. Then this window into、uh, the world of my guests should provide you with, should give you a little bit of a sense of what this show is all about, and hopefully inspire you to go back and listen to the episodes in full, or at least some of them,、uh, and visit. Some of the shows maybe you might have missed throughout the year if you have been a listener, and I'll provide links to all the individual specific episodes in the show notes, which you can find on the episode page at richroll.com. Hey everybody, like me, 
Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost, science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. Okay, again, I love all my guests. Uh, my instinct is to excerpt all of the episodes, but uh, that would just be too long. I really wanted to just give you a flavor of what this show is all about to help jog your memory of this journey that we've been on. And so, of course, I just had to choose only a few of the amazing people that uh, I've been blessed to have conversations with. So consider this some of my best content of 2017. Uh, and to launch us into all of this, let's begin with the great Dr. Neil Bernard. Uh, at Dr. Neil Bernard on Twitter, D-R Neil Bernard, N-E-A-L-B-A-R-N-A-R-D. Uh, Neil Bernard, MD, is a preeminent authority on diet and nutrition and its impact on illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's. He is the founder and president of PCRM, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, where he leads programs advocating for preventive medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. He also runs the Bernard Medical Center, which is a groundbreaking nonprofit primary care medical practice where board-certified physicians, nurse practitioners, and registered dietitians help patients prevent and reverse serious health problems, leveraging a holistic approach that involves tackling the actual causes of illness. Imagine that, the actual causes of illness with extra attention, of course, on nutrition. Uh, I love Dr. Bernard. He's a good friend. He's been an, an amazing multiple guest on this show. And here's a little bit of my talk this past year from episode 296. Enjoy. The, the big picture that I see, it was relatively few people going to a plant-based diet, say 20 years ago. Now it's like all over the place. Right. It, th this movement, I think, is unstoppable, even with this war of misinformation. And for every ridiculous industry-funded study, there are plenty of good studies clearly showing the truth. Mm -hmm. But those those studies aren't getting the kind of bandwidth that these other studies are getting. And is it is it a financial thing? It's like, you know, the kale and broccoli growers can't get together and pool their money to compete with the dairy industry and the meat industry. You said it. I got to tell you, it's true. They, they not only pour money into doing the research, which is costly, but then they've got their communications teams set to push it. And worst of all, the studies done in the U.S. have the backing of the U.S. government because by law, the government must promote American agricultural products. Mm -hmm. And they have specifically funded studies and they fund promotional programs uh, not only to make dairy products look healthy, but to actually promote 
more consumption of them, whether they're healthy or not. So <laughs> that's all the bad news. The good news is um, if you look at milk consumption, it's, it's been falling. Despite all the milk mustache ads and so forth, it's been falling. Cheese is going, unfortunately going up. Meat has fallen, meat consumption has fallen about 10% over mm-hmm. the last decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not where, where we need to be at all, but we are making progress. So this this idea, uh, you kind of touched on it. It's called, gov- what is it called? Government setbacks? Go- uh, set-offs? Well, yeah, it's the checkoff program. The checkoffs, right. Um, they're, they're, uh, um, the, for every unit of milk that you sell or every cow you sell, um, you will donate money to a, a kitty that the government administers. And they pay for research and they pay for promotion and all this kind of stuff. Right. So there's that. Um, they kind of touch on it in, in the documentary, What the Health. And you spoke about it in your presentation at Moby's house the other week um, when you see an ad for a Wendy's double cheeseburger or the newest version of, you know, the Pizza Hut pizza with uh, injected cheese into the crust and all these sorts of things that actually there is a relationship between those marketing campaigns and those products and the influx of government funding. So can you explain that a little uh, bit? Because I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear that. By law, the U.S. and this has been the case for a long time, the U.S. government by law must promote American agricultural products. This is something Congress in its wisdom passed a number of years ago. And they promote products regardless of their health value, and often in spite of their health value. So they take this pot of money and they pour it into research studies and the U.S. government did work with Wendy's, uh, with a contract that I can show you, to market the Wendy's Cheddar Lovers Bacon uh-huh. Cheeseburger. I'm not kidding. It sold two and a quarter million pounds of cheese. They then worked with Subway to, which Subway had two sandwiches that didn't have cheese on them. So on contract with the U.S. government, they stuck cheese on those sandwiches. They worked with Pizza Hut to put an entire pound of cheese on one serving of pizza. They worked with Taco Bell. Uh, Burger King, all the others, so that cheese was promoted. For example, uh, you go through the drive-through, and you can't imagine that what they say over the loudspeaker is going to be the government speak. Welcome to Taco Bell. Would you like to try our quesadilla today? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't say you want a strawberry smoothie or something. You know, it's like something cheesy. And so these are all done on contract. We got them through the Freedom of Information. So like those we were talking points away. are like upsells that are specifically kind of inserted into the talking points that that person at the fast food restaurant is sort of told, this is how you communicate with the customer. Yeah, that was part of it. The government has supplied advisors to McDonald's. I'm talking about people going to McDonald's headquarters and advising them on their business practices. I mean, don't you think every computer manufacturer would like to have the government promoting their products? Uh, well... For some, it, it's it's wrong. It should stop. Um, but that's where we are. We live in a country which, if this were a Latin American country, you could imagine drugs, it kind of uh, infusing uh, the uh, in, their influence in the government. Well, right. here it's agricultural products doing the same kind of thing. So, what what would have to happen systemically in order for the government to get behind? <clears throat> sort of using that machinery to push fruits and vegetables instead of you know cheese and meat. You know, subsidies, uh, eradicating subsidies or the, the, changing the, large, the structure of lobbying in Washington. Or, I mean, it, it would have um, to be, be from the top. It, it, would, now, it right? would literally require an act of Congress. And I have to say that the fruit and vegetable people don't really want to be part of that. Um, they want to fight their own fight, but they, they are not interested in subsidies for the most part. 
Um, And none of this would matter if these products didn't have a health impact, but they do. Um, And and they have a surprising impact. And this is something else that gets swept under the rug. let me, let me give you a short example, if you don't mind. Sure. There's a woman named Catherine Lawrence, who you may know. She's a, uh, she lives in uh-huh. Texas, but um, her story is very striking. Uh, she, she, she was originally from Louisiana. She was in the Air Force. She was an aerospace engineer. She was one of the first people going into Iraq in 2003 to lay down American military bases. Um, anyway, she's working in this war zone. She's in, she's in the military, mm-hmm. and you're not gaining weight, eating military food, and working hard. Uh, her 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 uh, tour of duty comes to an end. She goes back home to Louisiana, and all her friends say, "Catherine, let's eat. Right. You know, you're home." And what does she love the most? Cheese, mac and cheese, um, Cheetos, all this stuff. She had a friend who knew she loved mac and cheese, so they gave her a case of 48 mac and cheese boxes. Those things that college sophomores eat all the right. time. Right. Uh, she for 48 days straight, Catherine ate mac and cheese out of a box. Anyway, she gained weight, but she also started to have these pains in her abdomen. And the, it, as the months went by, it got worse and worse and worse. And her doctor diagnosed endometriosis, mm-hmm. which is a condition where cells that are supposed to be inside your uterus migrate out and they seed around your abdomen and they start swelling with your cycle. And the pain is terrible. The treatment can be, hist- and it also causes infertility. And the treatment is a hysterectomy in a lot of cases. And, and she said to her doctor, you know, rather not have a hysterectomy, I, I'd like to have a family. And this was the treatment. And she was not getting better, so they scheduled it. Anyway, a friend said to her, why don't you try a plant-based diet? Because there's a lot of evidence that that will affect your hormones, your hormone balance. And what you got is a hormonal issue. And she was really half-hearted about it, but she thought, like, what's my choice? So she went 100% vegan, no dairy, like no cheese, but no animal products at all. And she started feeling better. She started losing weight. Week after week, she was losing weight. And as time went on, all of these abdominal symptoms started to just go away. So she went back to the doctor who did a laparoscopy. You you look into the abdomen with a scope. Mm -hmm. And he looks all around, looks all around. The doctor's looking all around. And then sends her into the recovery room. And the doctor went out to the waiting room to talk to her husband. And he said, her endometriosis is practically gone. And the husband said, you know... She changed her diet. She went 100% vegan, and she's been feeling better week by week, and it's and her pain has been going away. And the doctor said, no, 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 no. I don't want to F- hear about that. Foods do not cause endometriosis, and there is no way that a diet change is going to heal it. There's only one explanation for this. This is a miracle. So uh-huh. the doctor Cause said- Because that's, that's more plausible. That's more plausible. <laughs> this is, pre- this is barely written in her medical yeah. record. But anyway, she never had the operation. She had. She didn't have the hysterectomy. She, her endometriosis is gone. She's got two kids. And in fact, she's her third child is on the way. Um, and she has now become a food for life instructor working with PCRM mm-hmm. to tell other women and men about how foods affect your body and to get to get healthy. So anyway, my hat is off to Catherine Lawrence for sharing her story. Oh, but anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is you're going to promote, not you, people are promoting cheese. They're saying, don't worry about it. It has no effect. Cheese comes from milk. Milk comes from a cow who is pregnant. The cows, the cows don't give, cows don't give milk at all, but they don't make milk until they have been impregnated. They give birth. And then the milk that their calf was going to get goes to the dairy. Um, a cow pregnancy is about nine months, similar to human pregnancy, and they're impregnated every year. So what that means 
three quarters of their lives, they are pregnant. They are being milked during that time. The estrogen that the cow makes gets into the milk, and it's just, a, it's not much, it's only a trace. But the milk is turned into cheese, the, the hormones go with the fat, and the average person eats 35 pounds of it every year. Mm-hmm. So researchers in Rochester, New York, look, looked at men. The men who ate the most cheese had the worst sperm counts, the worst sperm morphology, the lowest sperm motility. In other words, they're- Because infer- of the estrogen in, in, content in, of that? Well, that's the theory. The theory is this, you're consuming just little traces of estrogen with your breakfast on your Egg McMuffin, the little cheese, and a little bit more at lunch and quite a lot at dinner on your pizza. And could those little traces of estrogens matter? Now, we, we had all thought, couldn't be. But the, I got to tell you, Rich, here's the worst. Um, here in California- Researchers looked at women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And if you've, been, if, you've, if you've had breast cancer in the past and you were treated for it, your concern is, is my cancer going to come back? Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, the women who consumed the most cheese had a 49% higher breast cancer mortality compared to the women who eat the least. Mm. And the, the difference is small. The difference is one daily serving or more less than a half a serving a day. So the women who eat little or no cheese and and other high-fat dairy products, it's cheese, it's butter, uh, that's where the hormones go. You compare to these low-cheese consumers, the ones who eat one or more servings a day, which is not a lot, the increased risk was 49%. I'm talking about risk of dying of your cancer. So again, the amounts of hormones are small, but it raises the question, do you want to feed any kind of dairy I'm talking about cow's milk, goat milk, whatever. Do you want to feed it to your six-year-old daughter or your six-year-old son or your wife or your husband or yourself or anybody? And and my thought is that the dairy products are this cultural aberration that has stuck because people get hooked on it, but it has nothing to do with human biology and we should be avoiding it. Up next, we have Sharon Salzberg, at Sharon Salzberg on Twitter. That's Salzberg B. E-R-G. Uh, Sharon is a towering figure in the field of meditation. She is a world-renowned teacher, a multiple New York Times bestselling author, and somebody who's played a crucial, central role in bringing and in introducing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West. Uh, she released a new book this year. It's called Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. And that was truly the locus of today's conversation. Uh, how to practice love, how to receive love, how to be love. So without further ado, please enjoy this little snippet from episode 298. What is real love? <laughs> I have to figure it out. <laughs> um, I usually talk about it as a state of really profound connection that needs to take it, take that concept away from kind of the adornments, you know, and the elaborations that the culture puts on it, that it has to be romantic it has to have a certain flavor. Uh, almost the whole book, actually, oddly enough, was born out of this one line in a movie, the movie Dan in Real Life. Um, the line goes, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Mm. And, of course, we know it as a feeling, we yearn for it as a feeling, we think of it constantly sometimes as a feeling, but what if we reconceptualize that as an ability, some capacity we have within us that's not in the hands of someone else? but is really part of us and that other people may awaken it or enliven it or nourish it or threaten it, but it's within us. So mm-hmm. I realized that without that shift, I, I tended to think of love as a, a commodity 
and it was almost like a package. And it's like the UPS person was standing in the doorstep with that package in his hand and changed his mind and went the other way. And it'd be like, hey, wait a minute, you know, right. I've lost all the love in my life. But really, it's within us. And uh, that was a huge shift for me. And how did you, well, I guess that's going to bring it back. I want to get into the whole origin story. We'll, we'll, we'll work our way towards that for, for context. Um, but you break the book up into three sections. It's basically love for oneself, love for others, and, and love for all, right? Yeah, and, right? And you kind of, um, it's a journey towards reclaiming this word and freeing it of all the baggage that we kind of associate mm-hmm, with it mm-hmm. and, and you know, placing it in a context really as a verb, right? And not yeah. something to be, um, not this sort of state or something that we're striving for or trying to get from another, Great. but trying to yeah. really kind of germinate and That's cultivate right. within ourselves. That's right. And it, uh, I think that, that realization has every level to it, including the fact that maybe it's up to us then, you know, which can be a little scary. Right. Like, whoa, wait a minute, you know. I was we don't want to the... take personal responsibility, yeah. you know, that's yeah. no fun. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that, oh, well, you know, maybe the package is a better deal. But, um, yeah, it has lots of levels. So, but that's when I mm-hmm. first was thinking about this book and, and uh, kind of creating it, and I talked to someone in publishing about it, they said to me, oh, the love market's really saturated. You know, it's right. like, it's so overdone. And I thought about that and, and I thought, well, maybe the how to fix your relationship market or how right. to the find ro- your relationship. Romantic love That's market. Right. You know, but this is something, this is something very different. It's not a mistake that, that, you know, the first section is cultivating love for oneself. Right. And, and I think we, you know, in our current society, think of self-love as indulgent or selfish or narcissistic Mm -hmm. or an exercise of the ego but Mm -hmm. really you know cultivating love for oneself is a foundational component in in actually even having the capacity to love other people so can you talk about that a little bit yeah i mean i think we tend to think of uh self-love as narcissism and being selfish and and like you say self-indulgent but i think it has two really amazing components one is a sense of inner resource, not feeling so exhausted and bereft and impoverished within, but having a sense of inner sufficiency or even inner abundance, which becomes like the source of being able to give and care and take care of others. You know, it's like if you feel like you've got nothing going on inside, nothing to contribute, uh, it's kind of a really bleak and hollow world within. You don't look at somebody in pain and think, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, go away. I'm really tired. You know, it's too much. I can't bear it. And we truly can't bear it in that moment. Uh, But we have the capacity to um, have a very different view of of our inner life and our experiences so that it doesn't feel so bleak and it doesn't feel so uh, not good enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other part of the love for oneself is self-compassion, which really comes into play, not in our triumphs, you know, in our great days, but when we've blown it and we've made a mistake or we've fallen off a course that we want to stay on or... Uh, whatever it is, you know, to be able to pick ourselves up and start over and have a sense of resilience really takes some examination. A lot of people think self-compassion is laziness. It's like, yeah, so what? I'll forgive myself. I'll mm-hmm. blow it again in 10 right, seconds. Like letting so yourself what? off the hook for everything. That's and, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But really, I think when we look at what's most effective and most efficient in making a change or getting something done, it's not going on a harangue towards yourself for like five and a half hours after you've blown it. 
you know, it's like saying, okay, lessons learned or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or that doesn't feel very good. Or what can I do to make amends and then start over? Most of us walk around with an inordinate amount of self-judgment yeah. and self-criticism and doubt and, you know, an undercurrent of worthlessness or, you know, I'm not worthy of love. And, and we play this tape in our mind, right? And, and I think when you're in that spot, um, whether it's victimization or just sort of, you know, wallowing in your own fear or what have you, you tend to look outside yourself for love. Like you, you, you look at another person as being the missing variable in that equation that's going to solve that for mm-hmm. yourself as mm-hmm. opposed to that inward journey of, of cultivating it within. But the problem, of course, is that nothing, you know, will actually fill that gap, right? You know? Nothing outside. And then, uh, I took in the book. We know lot. that intellectually, <laughs> oh, but like we do. We, you know, well, I, I, a lot of people do, and we, st- but we still do it. You of know? course, we do it. You know, and it hurts so much. It's I really know. sad. Um, of course, we do it, but that's worthy of some self-compassion, right there. Um, but we don't have to do it in as obsessed a way and as deluded a way, perhaps, as we once did, because we can see clearly. We can see for ourselves. You know, the I think that the world is is built of so many myths and just untruths and uh, we're led to believe so many things that simply aren't true. Mm-hmm. And we incorporate them. We, we run around trying to find the perfect whatever. Um, and sometimes we can step back and say, wait a minute, do I really need that? Or what's the nature of that? And even love itself comes onto that, that idea because so many times people think of love as being stupid or, you know, like sentimental or, or weak. Or weak or saccharine. And, and, you know, what's really strong is like vengefulness or whatever. But when you look at those states, just look at them. Uh, it's kind of the opposite, actually. Vengefulness is very narrow, very much tunnel vision, very much um, not seeing any options. Uh, hate, hateful, you know, it doesn't feel really that good. And it's kind of brittle, you know, it's not really that strong. But Love or compassion are, are states of tremendous like spaciousness and um, presence and you know energy and generosity. They are actually stronger than we think. A prominent recurring theme of my podcast is addiction, alcoholism, sobriety, and recovery. And so to walk us through some of those issues uh, is my good friend Tommy Rosen at Tommy Rosen on Twitter. Tommy is an addiction recovery expert who has spent the last two decades immersed in yoga, recovery, and wellness. He is the author of Recovery 2.0, Move Beyond Addiction and Upgrade Your Life. And he is also the founder and host of the Recovery 2.0 Beyond Addiction online conference, which I was privileged to be uh, a speaker, uh, a participant in. Uh, This is a conversation about Tommy's remarkable path to recovery. It's an intense and at times profound discourse on the ravages of addiction and alcoholism. Uh, I really encourage everybody who missed this one on the first go around to go back and listen to it. It's episode 302. In the meantime, here's a taste. There's a level of shame that seems to go along with the dis-ease of addiction, alcoholism, what have you. The anonymity concept was created to protect the members so that if you were one of these people who were in recovery, nobody in your world would know because you didn't want anyone to know. But that covets shame. That protects the shame. 
Exactly. So at what point, at what point do you transcend this disease? At what point? Now, if, if you are going to hang on to a doctrine that says you never, you never will be beyond this, well, then you have, at least for the time being, relegated yourself to a way of thinking that deems you sick for the rest of your life. What if one day at a time is the way everybody is in the world? Aren't we all on a 24-hour clock? Don't we all have to sleep every day, eat every day? What if one day at a time is just part of the human condition? What if addiction is just nothing more than a particular outcropping of the human condition that actually isn't shameful at all? Now, the behaviors that come out of a person's addiction, yeah, we're all going to be ashamed of stealing, lying, cheating. Any human being will be ashamed of those things at some level of their being because you understand that it's wrong, that it's against the natural flow, that it's against the things that you believe in. But there's a healing of that once you get better. I could say to you right now, I, I, I've lied, but I'm not a liar. I've cheated, but I'm not a cheat. I've stolen, but I'm not a thief. That's not what or who I am. There's been a transformation in me. I recognize that I behaved poorly because I was in a very dense state of consciousness in which... I would seek to feel better from my disconnection and my disease through the taking of drugs that only made things worse for me. I did that. I'm not ashamed of it. Not even in the slightest bit. I don't regret it. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm not particularly concerned if you have a judgment about me for it. I'm comfortable in my character and my personality today. I've healed to the point where it doesn't matter. So you see, I'm free now. If you portray freedom to people who say to you, it is not possible to be free, you will be threatening. You will be disrupting their way of being. And a great outcry will take place. And the way my friend described it is, you're in a barrel of monkeys and you're climbing out of the barrel and the other monkeys don't like it. And they will do everything they can to pull you back down. Now that's not to say that that's, I'm not referring to people in 12-step programs as a barrel of monkeys. There's no, there's no end to my respect and love for anybody who's working at moving along a continuum of being free. The only thing I'm saying is, at what point do you become a human being on a path of discovery and not just a member of a fellowship? At what point do you move beyond all that? Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, that's, that's beautifully put. Um, I think the only, the, the only caveat... I would present you with is that that freedom is preconditioned or or you know is contingent upon a continual commitment to progressively growing which is the case for every human being right so the sense that like I think I think baked into the word freedom is this idea well you can now you can just relax and take your foot off the gas and cruise right right I, I, that's so great and I think the idea of freedom to most people who are either stuck in addiction or who are in recovery from addiction, the idea of freedom or healing or having recovered means 
now I can drink with impunity. Right. Now I can use drugs because I'm free. Now I get it. Before I was an addict, but now I'm free. You see, the way I'm looking at it is anybody who seeks to solve their life's problems through something in the outside world that ultimately is addictive is in a state of delusion. Mm -hmm. It's delusion. And it will be played out. You don't have to listen to me. It'll be played out in your life, just like it was played out in my life. When I looked to the outside world through drugs, alcohol, sex, food, gambling, cigarettes, etc., 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 to solve my life's riddle. I was on, I had the right destination in mind. The right destination is connection, love, healing, recovery. But I was on the wrong train. I got on the wrong train. And so all I'm saying is we have to get on the right train. And when you've healed and when you're free, you will know it because you no longer have any desire, any desire to go back to the behaviors or the, the, uh, the person that you once were. It's as if it's like a snake that has completely shed its skin. It's not you anymore because it never was you. But to get to that place, there's a lot of work that has to happen. You got to wrestle with the dark recesses of your soul and, and really figure out who you are. It's a, it's a process of birthing the authentic self within so that you can stop jamming that square peg into a round hole and suddenly that peg fits perfectly. And to get to that place means you know, making peace with your past and mending those relationships and resolving these, you know, emotional wounds or overcoming these childhood traumas, to put it in Gabor's terminology, so that you can own your story, speak freely about it without shame, without being triggered emotionally. Uh, and with that comes a sense of not just self-esteem, but self-empowerment that allows you to then be this lighthouse who then is an, an attractive, you know, sort of person for somebody who is struggling or further down, you know, a couple pegs further down on that path. Um, but it doesn't come overnight and it doesn't come without, you know, what you can't circumvent or find some way to growth hack that process. And think of the alternative. So you can just, <laughs> you can continue. No one is saying you have to do anything. You can, you can stay on your train. And eventually, you yourself will become sick of it. Not because I say so, or your parents say so, or a, an authority figure of some kind says so, but because inside, you're not meant to suffer in that way. And you will wake up to it. And you will realize this is unbearable. This is untenable for me. I'm going to have to change. What do I do? And it begins one day at a time. Mm. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a lot of work. But what are you doing in the meantime? Being a human being, you think you came here and it's going to be easy? <laughs> Whether you're an addict or, or anybody else on this planet, you, you think there's anybody that gets away from being human? I think we need to reconceptualize or, or redefine the word addiction in and of itself. You know, I think that we think of addiction in terms of severe cases, the heroin addict, or, you know, even the bulimic or something like that. But I think that 
the vast majority of people, if not everybody, falls somewhere on a spectrum of addiction. You know, how often are you checking your Twitter feed? Like, you know, why can't you stop going to the mall? How much ice cream are you eating? You know, you know, what are you trying to resolve within yourself through the relationship that you're in? Anything outside of yourself can be used as a vehicle for treating your emotional, you know, mental and, and, and spiritual state. And to the extent that you are are doing that on even a, a very rudimentary level, there is an element, a kernel, a seed that is inherently addictive that can be redressed. Even if it's mild, it is there. Yes. There's no question that for me, this is uh, a part of the human condition. And it may it manifest itself in a variety of different ways and levels in different people. But at the end of the day, when you close the door and it's just you, you know. You know now. Here are the things I need to work on. Here are the things that are hard for me. Here are the pains I'm feeling. Here's the difficulty of being me, the difficulty of being human. Like, you know what it is, and you know the things you do, the escape hatches that you look for every day to not sit still long enough to face those realities, heal them. Well, first of all, you installed them, so you know where they are, right? They're in there somewhere. Maybe nobody else does, but you know where they are. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is, you know, the, the two, two of the biggest addictions right now are the addiction to having, the addiction to doing. And you have to do to have. So how can we convince people that actually the solution is to stop looking for escape hatches and to sit still long enough to develop a true, a real and true relationship with yourself, a real and true comfort with yourself. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can look for addiction and an outlet. You can look for an escape hatch in anything. You know it full well with athletics and you can, you can go there. I've seen people use yoga as a, as a full-on, full-blown way of avoiding themselves. Mm-hmm. So we eventually we will be brought to stillness. And when we get there, it's an incredible day because we're like, wow, I'm contented just to be sitting still with myself. That's enough. Now, most people never even could imagine such a place or imagine that they would want that for themselves. Taro Isakapila at Four Sigmatic on Twitter is the co-founder, president, and marketing director of Four Sigmatic Foods, the company behind a wide variety of health-promoting mushroom products. He's also the author of a new book that came out this year called Healing Mushrooms. And this is excerpted from what I think is a mind-blowing conversation about the mystical, magical, wellness-promoting properties of fungi with the original fungi himself, Taro, that will forever change how you think about mushrooms. So please enjoy this excerpt from RRP320 with my friend, Taro Isakopila. So let's go through it. Uh, you know, the more popular uh, medicinal 
sort of adaptogenic yep. mushrooms that you kind of uh, are involved in are not just lion's mane, but we've got shaga, we've got reishi, we talked about cordyceps a little bit. I mean, those are kind of the main ones, right? Yeah, those like, are so them. Let's parse those. And those like, are main what do ones. Do and like, why should we be including these in our diet? Yeah, so those are the most kind of researched and most differentiated. And if you're in the health circles, you might have heard of reishi. But if you're just tuning in and you is it rishi or reishi? I, there's not either way. Okay. There's you you can it's a Japanese word, and uh, you can say either way. And but if you're tuning in and you're like, hey, what are these? Like I've never heard of any of them. They sound so exotic. I just want to before we dive into what do they, all of those do is just know that there are more familiar mushrooms that offer similar and equally good functional benefits. The shiitake the maitake, the enoki, the oyster mushroom. So not all of them are exotic as cordyceps. Mm -hmm. But to just to kind of frame it, um, reishi or reishi um, is the queen of all mushrooms. So it's, it's the most studied of them for their health benefits. It's really like this motherly, calming, nurturing mushroom, especially good if you're highly stressed or if you need to improve your sleep quality. Um, but um, all of these top mushrooms help with your gut health, your gut biome. Um, reishi is great for that. They help with usually blood sugar, you know, and just managing. Um, but yeah, gut health and immunity, they're, they're modulating your immune system. But reishi particularly is this nurturing, motherly, uh, calming mushroom. And then there's pretty fascinating studies on how it could improve sleep quality so you can go into a deeper sleep. And then cordyceps is even though neither of them are like sedative or stimulant, it's like somewhat the opposite. It's like, it's like fire energy, go, 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 like get more out of your workout, <clears throat> use for more of the lungs and the respiratory issues, but also sports and performance. Um, I actually in the, um, in, in, in my upcoming book, there is a, there's a recipe called cordyceps on the beach mm -hmm. because it was used as an aphrodisiac for a long time. So oh, as really? a kind of a playful, fun way of making a mocktail and, uh, um, using cordyceps as the, as the booster. But so that's like fire energy, go performance. One question I have about that is I use it not on a daily basis, but yep. kind of pick and choose like, okay, I have a really big workout on yep. Thursday, so I'll have it that morning, but I don't do it every day. So, the, but I don't know, like, is it okay to do it every day or do you develop like a, like a, in a not immunity, but a tolerance to it? Like, yep. is it something that is, it should be for daily use or is it something that you should just use periodically? So this is adaptogen, this concept of these 10 to 20 of the most studied powerful herbs and fungi in the world that balance our body. Um, so the word adaptogen comes from it being helpful to adapt you to stress mm -hmm. and difficult situation from exercise to just your normal daily life of being a mother or two and two children or whatever. Right. Um, and, it, and just sorry to interrupt, but yeah. like in an Ayurvedic sense, it kind of reads your body and understands what's out of balance and, Correct. and, and sort of naturally knows so that's, how to address that. That's exactly the point. So in order to be an adaptogen or as the Ayurveda, they often like Rasayana or um, an emperor herb in China, or you have to be safe and non-habit forming. So if it causes you an addiction or if it's not safe daily, it cannot be an adaptogen. Second is what you just said is, is it, it restores balance. So it's not really healing you of anything. It just restores balance, whatever the homeostasis and balance it is mm -hmm. for your case. 
So the same thing for someone might be a lot of energy and for the other person it might be a lot of calming depending where you are on the spectrum. And then third one is that it's non-specific. So it works the body like a symphony versus an individual instrument. Right. So so those are things. And um, so yeah, cordyceps is um, safe every day to answer your question. That being said, I all of these adaptogens, I think they're better if you if you play with them seasonally and rotate them mm -hmm. a little bit. That being said, the mushrooms have, and actually oats, but in much smaller capacity, have these, one of the most studied compounds in the world called polysaccharides, these mini sugars. And uh, even if you're on a, on a ketogenic diet, they're, they're not gonna impact your blood sugar. But um, especially these beta-glucans are among the most studied compounds for human health. And those beta-glucans are kind of like the chlorophyll plants in a way, the same ways that you, you don't have to eat spinach every day. You don't have to eat kale every day, but it's probably in your best interest to have chlorophyll in some capacity on a daily basis, on a regular basis. The same way it's probably good to have beta-glucans and polysaccharides every day, but one day it can come from a shiitake, one day it can come from cordyceps, mm -hmm. and then one day it can come from goji berries or oats but um so it's safe every day but you're probably doing it the right way by just kind of Very rotating right. them a little bit i think that's an important point that has a macro application to how we live our lives and and think about you know what we put in our bodies because we have a tendency as human beings to uh you know to want to just zero in on one thing and think yeah. that's the you know that is the that's the thing that's going to make the difference and those things tend to vacillate depending upon cultural trends so oh, for a so while true. it's kale you know and yeah. then it's this and then it's like that's the answer that's the thing and it's like it's not you know we as human beings and and part of this greater ecosystem we are as cyclical as the plants that grow out of the the ground and i yeah. think we need to pay more attention to those circadian rhythms and modulate our our behavior patterns and our eating habits accordingly and i think that's a really important point so even though i'm you know, gallivanting around the world, talking and yelling about mushrooms, and and I'm trying to be like a PR firm for this kingdom. You're it's, doing a good job. By oh, the way. thank you. At, <laughs> I, at any point, I don't want somebody to think that mushrooms are better than another kingdom, or that mushrooms are like the ultimate superfood. No, they're just that's, ov overlooked. That doesn't, that doesn't get clicks. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like in doing my research for today, it's like I look at the headlines of the press that you get. Yep. And it's like, you know, mushroom coffee is the new kale. It's like, yeah. that's what gets people interested. Oh, you for know? sure. And, you know, there's a value to that. If yeah. you get, it's like a conversation opener. It's the same way as, like I said, like often on a daily basis, somebody comes to me and is like, ha ha ha, are these psychedelic or are these magic yeah. mushrooms? Uh, I've never heard that joke before. Yeah, and so, <laughs> I mean, if that gets the conversation going, let's roll right. with it. It's not, it's not a bad thing, you know? Um, I'm sure you also don't wanna be known as just this guy who does these ultra endurance feeds. It's, but it's, if that's a conversation starter to join right. you like in what a gets people holistic- interested in what else you have to say. Yeah, and like the whole, the lifestyle and just how, who are you as a father and, and as, a, mm -hmm. as, a, as a family man and, and you know holistic and just you know spirituality and all that other stuff that you have to offer but that might be the conversation starter is like right how many iron mans <laughs> or you know it's like it's like um so the same with that is is mushrooms is is a kind of conversation starter you know i don't mind those headlines 
but as long as you kind of very quickly move the conversation to uh, what they actually are, is that they're a kingdom that is part of the planet. The planet doesn't survive without them. We probably will benefit the, using them for our health and wellness. Um, doesn't mean that all mushrooms are good and it doesn't mean that mushrooms are better than good bacteria or good plants. They're just part of a holistic, smart lifestyle. They're just very overlooked. Mm-hmm. And there's like these immediate benefits and immediate clear things that you can get by just incorporating a little bit of them to your diet. Um, so that's probably going to help you um, live a, a life that you more want to live, you know, a healthier life, more fulfilled life. Okay, next up, I've got the amazing, super cool, ultra-athlete, humanitarian, Samantha Gash. She is so awesome. At Samantha Gash on Twitter. Samantha is somebody who is amazing for, I don't know, I can't count how many reasons, but something I think is really cool about her is that she was somebody who had no athletic background, who then, in a very short period of time, became one of the most accomplished and inspirational female role models and ultra runners of our time. We had an amazing talk. We talked about self-belief, purpose, perseverance, uh, the call to service, and the close kinship, the close relationship that exists between passion and suffering. Here's a slice from episode 311 with Samantha Gash. What is it about, like on a, on a broader level, like what is it about that suffering or that experience of pushing through, you know, what is the allure and like, what does it mean to you? Like, what is it, what is it that you're connecting with and why does that give your life meaning? Do you know, um, I talk about this a bit in my like presentations, but do you know the Latin root of passion is to suffer? I didn't know that, yeah. but I love that. And so often people go, I'm so passionate, I'm so passionate. And I'm like, oh, are you willing to suffer the most in your life for that thing that you're talking that you're passionate about? I mean, it doesn't need to be the thing that you do for your full-time job. What we're passionate about can be fulfilled the most through the thing that we do outside of work because we have the time and space and maybe financial freedom from our full-time job. But I think when you are willing to suffer for something and you connect it for something that's for me outside of myself to a bit, that suffering doesn't seem so great anymore. I really do gain great perspective of it. I also choose when to suffer. Like I don't suffer. Like it's why I don't always race anymore because I know what it's like and how hard it is. And I want to make my footsteps count. And on the idea that maybe we don't have that many footsteps, what is the best use of my footsteps? Mm-hmm. How do you think of the balance between mental and physical in terms of you know, the strengths and requirements to mm. tackle these types of events? Uh, I definitely think mental is a lot stronger. You know, I've seen people who are physically very capable and pull out of these races the second day. And the worst thing about these races is you have to, typically you have to stay with the race because you're in the, the middle of the Sahara Desert. So you actually have to watch people complete the race that you dreamed about doing and time and time again I would see people and I just would see their like their head in their hands thinking why did I pull out at that point like Mm -hmm. could I the thing is there's so many things you can do before pull out you can slow down you can take on more nutrition you can wait for someone to come and like bounce off their camaraderie Um, you can sit down for a moment but somehow all those alternatives become 
like we don't think of them when we're feeling in that crux of like discomfort and we're on the edge. We think our only solution is to completely take ourselves away from it. Yeah. Uh, I can't actually remember what your question was, but well, it has to do with the mental game. Yeah, so right? I think and, and, I think and the barriers that that we erect, I think that prevent us mm. from really connecting with our capabilities. Like, you know, David Goggins says mm. it all the time. Like, he's got his forty percent rule. You know, his famous forty percent rule. Like, yeah. we're you know, when we think we're done, we've only tapped into about forty percent of what we're truly capable yeah. of. And, and, I don't and you meet that. Yet. Like, like, how do you? Is that? Do you agree with that? Is that? Do you think of it differently? I don't have a formula for it. Um, but for me, I forty-one or yeah, forty-one. I'll be like David. Mine's forty-three point five percent. I I definitely think mental plays a massive role in the creation of self-belief that you can do something like that. And then the self-belief then requires you to have the the commitment to do the training. So I think it starts with the mental side, but then that also empowers the physicality as well. Mm. But I think you have to really believe in yourself. You have to believe it's possible um, and you have to believe in your ability to do the hard work behind it. Have you had any of these kind of spiritual experiences that you hear about like dean talks about you know sort of having his visions when he becomes delirious and you know what is your what is your kind of like ethereal connection to these endeavors oh i don't know if i in the expeditions you have a couple of them um in india i couldn't have been running in a more spiritual place and you know i i talked about spirituality a lot with my crew whilst i was out there because some of my crew were avid um, yogis mm-hmm. and felt the departure of being able to practice yoga in a in a studio meant that they were void of their spirituality. And I said, spirituality isn't something, in my opinion, spirituality isn't something that you get in a room. It's something that's with inside you that you can bring into other parts of your life. And spirituality for me is to experience or to be part of what the majority of the population truly live their life like. Uh-huh. And the way the majority of Indians live, daily survival, moment by moment, not thinking ahead, to try and like get into that frame mind takes me to my closest place of spirituality without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're not used to in like it's very hard to get to that. But these people live it by not because of choice. And what does that spirituality look like for you? Like how do you how do you articulate that? Uh, I think it's the it's when I actually stop fretting about what's to come and dwelling on what's past. Mm-hmm. When being I'm in the moment, being in the being moment, in the now, right? Yeah. I think that's how you you get through these ultras. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, the more you can anchor yourself in the present, that like fear of the future and reflection on how hard it's been or whatever difficulties you've had evaporates and allows you to just propel forward. Mm. But I, and as I think I said earlier on. But I don't, I, I'm very careful when I choose to take myself there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not someone that just wants to beat myself into like discomfort all the time to constantly see what I'm capable of. Like uh, I do back myself now. I know that I'm capable of going there, um, but I don't always need to go there. And I think that's something I've learned with maturity and getting a bit older. So then what is your relationship with balance? The balance is that I have to really believe in why I'm doing it to take myself there. And that, you know, my relationship with um, myself and my family and my partner and like my health and 
the pursuit of pushing the boundaries need to sometimes be moderately aligned Mm -hmm. and there'll be times when I push the boundaries of out of the comfort zone a lot so the last three years I've been doing that a lot with India and now I need to kind of like go back into like it has to swing it has to swing back so I can go back there and do it in the right way for the right reasons and with the right outcomes Mm -hmm. so now I'm kind of like going yeah you couldn't just launch right into the next thing yeah which everyone goes what's next and I'm like for the first time in my life I feel comfortable going like I, for a moment, I tried to kind of say a few things because I've got ideas. Of course, I have ideas, but I'm like, no, there's no what's next. I'm just, I'm going to do little, I'm doing little micro adventures. Um, I'm finishing my book, which comes out next year. Oh, nice. um, we're going to make a document. We just got the funding for the Run India documentary. Well, I know that you made these amazing, there are these amazing videos mm. on Vimeo yeah. that you can find on your on your website. I, I believe those are those were the ones produced by world vision right those ones were produced by a guy called steve young Uh um, who was hired by world vision um kind of at my request as the right person to come out on this expedition but there'll be a proper documentary proper documentary made by that guy who filmed that Uh, kind of content that's very cool and that was something that was hanging over me i'm like we have so much incredible content in the can that shows these stories of these people that we met and what we went through um it almost wouldn't be doing justice to the project to not be able to showcase that stuff. Yeah, beautiful. So yeah. Do you, how, is there an anticipated sort of release date for that? Yeah, or is December. It It'll be oh, out December. by December. Oh, yeah. wow. So wow. hopefully we will um, can, can take it into a couple of the film festivals. Uh-huh. Um, is Jennifer then sort of taking a look at the footage? Is she, she, oh, she's my, communication like, with her? I mean, Jennifer's one of my best friends now. Uh-huh. You know, oh, I, cool. I came to her wedding um, in Berkeley last year uh-huh. um, and I... I'm going to go and visit her in San Francisco at the end of this trip. So she's definitely my soul sister and yeah. has looked over every content that I've ever kind of put out. And That's she's cool. a very good guiding, um, I suppose, figure for me on right. that stuff. Well, we got to land this plane. But uh, I think the final thing I kind of want to explore with you is how you think about your role as a, um, you know, as this sort of inspirational figure or role model for female empowerment you know this is a theme that kind of comes up from time to time on the podcast and i kind of my mantra the thing i always say is like there are amazing women doing amazing things all over the place we don't do a very good job of shining a spotlight on them and you know in america the spotlight is keenly on the kardashians and and kind of all kinds of you know figures that as a father of two young daughters i would prefer my daughters don't model themselves Mm -hmm. after and so i'm always so happy uh to be able to share the message of somebody who i think is a healthy role model an inspiring figure who is really empowering you know women and young women in particular all over the world with your strength and your grace and and your accomplishments so how do you like think about how you carry that I struggle with the word inspiration. Um, I struggle with the word inspiration. In the when you sense, get an email and somebody says, you're such an inspiration, how does that make you feel? Um, like, what is your emotional reaction to that? I used to cringe because I, maybe I, I think the places, the people I'm inspired by are the ones that just do what they really believe in for the intention of doing the thing that they really believe in, like wholeheartedly. And then it's my choice to feel inspired by them, not because they've said that they're inspiring, but because they're doing something they really believe. Mm-hmm. And so if someone chooses to say, oh, I'm really inspired by your talk or what you did, like that's that's them. Like that's how they choose to feel and that's awesome. But I'm, I guess I don't 
go about my business and I don't run across India with the objective of being inspiring. It's I'm doing this thing because I really believe it can make a tangible difference through a different type of way. And it's, I think it's soft, that run across India, I think was a really great example of soft diplomacy, which I think can be really effective. Um, and if someone chooses to feel a certain way about it, I mean, yeah, of course but it's But you're aware that that, you know, that this is, you know, that this sort of sense about yourself is being cultivated. I mean, you go and you give talks at corporations and, you know, probably at schools and all kinds of places, right? So when you're delivering that message, like how are you, you know, what is it, what is the core idea that you're trying to communicate? Well, my core thing is to just show that I am really a normal person in the sense that I'm relatable, that anyone could make the choices that I've chosen to make and go down this path. It just comes from choice. And if I can open up people's minds to how they can pursue their choices, well, that excites me, particularly when it comes into the way of positively impacting the lives of other people. One of the most impressive people I have ever met, Scott Harrison, at Scott Harrison on Twitter, is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, which is this amazing nonprofit that is not only making a huge dent in solving the global water crisis, which is this massive problem, but is also this incredibly inspirational organization that has completely upended the whole charity sector altogether by redefining how we think about giving and ultimately how we give. Uh, I've become a proud supporter of Charity Water in the wake of this conversation. And I'm super grateful for all of your contributions over the past year. Together, we raised a whole bunch of money that ultimately is going to provide access to clean water for thousands of people for the very first time with this amazing ripple effect on generations to come. Uh, I'm excited to share this excerpt with you. And if this is your first introduction to Scott and to Charity Water and you want to learn more, please go back and listen to the full episode. That's episode 305. And go to charitywater.org to learn more about the nonprofit and to give. So without further ado, please enjoy this snippet with Scott Harrison. So let's talk about the water problem specifically. So a billion people, when you began this journey, uh, lacking clean water. Most of that is sub-Saharan Africa. Is that correct? Right. And now that number's down to like six sixty. Right. Okay. Yeah, six hundred sixty-three million. So it's it's uh, sub-Saharan Africa. It's India. It's Southeast Asia. Uh, very little bit in Central and South America. Um, yeah. So the state of the, the crisis today, it's a tenth of the world. So one out of every ten people alive today is drinking bad water today. Wow. Because of the circumstances they were born mm-hmm. in, and you know this is kind of a profound concept that we've you know, we've just wrestled with over the last decade now of charity water. And I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. Water for me comes out of the tap. It's it's in bottles uh, that we can afford. And in the places that we're working, uh, women are often walking, you know, five, six hours a day to get dirty water from a swamp or a river, uh, often risking their lives to do it. Um, you know, I'll talk about the crisis. So if you don't have clean water, it makes you sick. 52% of the disease uh, is, is because of bad water and, and sanitation. Um, it's incredibly harmful to kids under five. So about a thousand kids will die today and every day just of drinking bad water. And you actually die of dehydration. So, you know, unheard you of like here in the West. And, and diarrhea. That's right, because the way that you cure diarrhea is with clean water. 
Uh, we've all seen the Pedialyte, right? The kind of blue stuff at the Walgreens. Uh, well, you don't have that. So if your child gets diarrhea, you give them the same bad water and they actually get so dehydrated that they just die. Worse. So huge health implications, worms, parasites, leeches, Bilharzia, uh, trachoma, people go blind from water. Um, huge education implications. So uh, at the time when we started, I don't know the updated stat, but when we started Charity Water, 50% of the world's schools didn't have clean water mm. or toilets. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there are people listening that education is their number one cause. Uh, how can you imagine going to a school where there's no clean water or toilets and you've got to bring dirty river water with you? And, and what was day. interesting was learning about how the, that has a disproportionate impact on, on young girls. On girls. And the toilets even more than the water because the girls will hit puberty and will stay home, you know, those four or five days every month, fall behind in their studies, you know, missing a week a month. And, you know, culturally, there's already resistance against them because they are the workhorse. You know, they're the ones getting the firewood, doing the cooking, getting the water. Doing so, those eight-hour walks. Doing the eight-hour walks. And it right. really is. You know, for someone listening, it's it sounds, it's just such a disconnect. It's so hard for us to fathom, you know, 663 million anything, uh, you know, an eight-hour walk. But that's what's happening. The women are getting up at four or five in the morning. They do the eight-hour walk, and then they come back for the second day of the work. Uh, cooking, uh, cleaning, gardening, uh, getting firewood. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's really difficult to imagine that. So that's the third one, really, is just time. Uh, just the, the amount of time wasted. There's health, there's education. Uh, 40 billion hours are wasted in Africa every year just collecting water. Mm-hmm. So you think of the, the, the potential there to turn that wasted time into productive time, whether it's family time, whether it's uh, small business or entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, we hear incredible stories when people get clean water. Uh, probably the, the most, I've, I've really seen a lot now over the years. I've been to 66 countries. I've been to Ethiopia 29 times since starting Charity Water. So a lot of my job is on the road, uh, you know, stuck in, I don't know, seat 62H uh, on a 14-hour flight. But it's uh, the story probably that's, that's, that for me best personifies the water crisis or the emergency that is facing people. Uh, is a story from Ethiopia of a woman named Leta Kiros. And I'd, I'd heard this story, let's say, on my 24th or 25th trip to Ethiopia, staying in a crappy $5 night hotel room with some donors. And the owner of the hotel recognized me, comes in the lobby or this little restaurant that we were sitting in and says, hey, you know, I'm from a really remote village. Before I came into this town to run this hotel, um, there was this woman in my village and she used to walk eight hours with the other women. But one day she gets home and she slips and falls and she spills her water and she breaks her clay pot. So her whole eight hour walk is now undone. Mm -hmm. He's like, she hung herself from a tree and we found her body swinging there. I remember he paused and he kind of watched the shock on our face and said, uh, the work you guys are doing is important. He walks back into the kitchen. I remember thinking, definitely not true. Tell the you know white international donor uh, a sad story that you know makes him feel really good about the work. But I just it just nagged and gnawed at me. And you know, is it possible that someone had committed suicide because they slipped on a rock and spilled their water? And I got a pass from my wife to to go and explore this for myself and live in this village completely off the grid. Um, I had to you know, fly to Addis, fly up to the north, drive five hours, and then rent a donkey 
and hike nine hours uh, with a little solar backpack mm-hmm. and a sleeping mat. And, and I, I found out it was true. Uh, I found 2,800 people living in this man's village uh, called Maida, and they were walking eight hours to horrible sur- sources. And, you know, he, the, I met her mom, I met her friend, I walked in her footsteps, I saw the tree where they'd, they'd found and cut her down. Uh, I saw the, the little pile of rocks behind the church where her grave was. And uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but when I, when I got to the village, I learned that she was only 13 when she died. She was a little girl. You know, this wasn't a, a woman who'd walked her whole life and said, enough. This was a 13-year-old girl brimming with um, aspirations of wanting to get out of the village and wanting to be a doctor. And what was even more shocking was when I tried to figure out what the motivation was, her best friend said, well, she would have killed herself because of shame. You know, she, she had screwed up. She'd spilled the water that the family needed to cook dinner. Mm-hmm. She'd broken the clay pot, which is a $3 asset. Um, so it would have just been too much for her to face her family because her carelessness oh, would set them back. So, you know, you, you have an experience like that and you just, you're pissed off. I mean, you're fired up and uh, I don't think there's anyone listening that thinks 13 year old girls should be hanging themselves from trees because they spilled their water uh, after an eight hour walk. And, and, and you know, the, the terrible irony is that in so many of these communities, the solutions are simple. They're living on top of massive amounts of clean water. You know, we're often able to drill 200 feet deep and get you know, 10 liters per second of spring water. What the communities don't have access to is the $10,000 required to drill the well. They don't have access to a million dollar drilling rig and compressors and trucks and hydrologists, which is what you know our community is able to provide. But the community will contribute stone and gravel and sweat equity. Uh, many of them will build roads over periods of months just to get the drilling rig into their village. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't have the money for the, the capital expense. Yeah, $10,000 and the, the transformation for the entire community is, you know, undefinable. Like I, I heard you tell a story about a woman who said she feels beautiful now, you know, because she always had to make that decision. Where is this clay pot of water going to go? Is it going to go to, you know, my kids? Is it going to go to my husband to wash the clothes? And never there, of course, never being enough to just sort of, att- you know, attend to her personal hygiene. Yeah. That's incredible. And we never even thought of that, that water could restore a woman's dignity. You know, we think of it typically in practical terms, but um, I was just in her village a few weeks ago, Helen Appio. Mm. Um, And the women were all saying, we look so smart now, looking so neat. (laughs) Because they they had the water to, as you said, wash their clothes, wash their face, feel, feel beautiful. Next up is the super impressive Gretchen Rubin at Gretchen Rubin on Twitter. Gretchen is many things, former Supreme Court clerk turned Uber author. She is a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100. She was also named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. She has sold over 3 million books on the subject of habits, happiness, and human nature. You might be familiar with her from her wildly popular blog, her runaway bestseller, The Happiness Project, or her new book, The Four Tendencies, which is the subject of this conversation, kind of the focus of this conversation, or of course, her podcast, Happier with Russian Rubin. Here's a taste from episode 317 of the Ritual Podcast with Gretchen Rubin. 
So the four tendencies are whether you're an upholder, a questioner, obliger, or rebel. So you and I are both upholders. Mm -hmm. um, so, and this has to do with how you respond to expectations. And all of us face two kinds of expectations. So there's outer expectations like meeting a work deadline, uh, meeting a request from a friend. And then there's inner expectations. So your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, your own desire to start um, lifting weights again. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep, they, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They wanna know what other people expect from them and meet those expectations, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Mm -hmm. Then questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, yeah, this makes sense, then they will do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will reject it. Um, they tend to hate anything arbitrary, inefficient, uh, unjustified. So they always wanna know why they should do something. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this when a friend of mine said, I don't understand it. I really wanna go running. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Mm -hmm. Well, when she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. But when she was just trying to go on her own, she struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They wanna do what they wanna do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like they wouldn't right. sign up for a 10 a.m. yoga class because they're like, I don't know what I'm gonna wanna do at 10 a.m. Um, so those are the four tendencies. Now, you and I are upholders and that's pretty unusual because the biggest tendency for both men and women, the one the biggest number of people belong to, Obligers. is obliger. Obligers, yeah. That's big. Second to them is questioner, also very big. Rebel is the smallest tendency. It's, it's the longest chapter in the book, but it's the mm -hmm. smallest tendency. It's the one the fewest people belong to. But our tendency, a polar tendency, only slightly larger. Those are the two kind of extreme polar uh, tendencies, and they're, they're pretty small. Not that many people are a rebels or a polders. Right. So before we uh, get into the particulars of these four different personality types and the pros and the cons and, and kind of what we're supposed to do with this information, yeah, 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 yeah. how did you arrive at this? Like, how did it dawn upon you? Did, is this the result of just a continuing pursuit into the depths of what makes people tick? Did you have like an epiphany? Did it come to you slowly? Well, both. Um, I started picking up these patterns. So my friend said that thing about the track team and that really got me thinking like, well, what's going on? Because it's the same person, it's the same behavior. Like why was it at one time effortless and now she can't do it? And let me just interrupt yeah. you to ask you this. Yeah. When you hear that as an upholder, what is your reaction when somebody tells you that? Well, see, that's what's interesting. And that's why I think it was an advantage to me to be an upholder in figuring out this framework. Because to me, I was like, I don't understand that. Yeah. That didn't make, like, I'm like, Just huh. get on with it. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I'm like, that's interesting because I don't experience that. And also uh, people were saying other things that I was like, I don't experience that. So like, when I would talk to people about New Year's resolution, because I wrote better, this book better than before that's all about mm -hmm. habit change. So I was talking to people about, I would also often ask people about New Year's resolutions as a way to get into their habits. And a certain number of people would give exactly the same answer. They would say, I would keep a resolution whenever it made sense to me, but I wouldn't do it on January 1st because January 1st is an arbitrary date. And that really struck me because I was like, well, the arbitrariness of January 1st never bothered me. Then there were people who would say like things like, well, why is it that busy parents like us can't take time for ourselves? And I would think, well, I'm a busy parent, but I don't have any trouble taking time mm -hmm. for myself. 
And then there were some people who just, like when I talked about habits, like to me, the idea of habits is energizing and freeing. I love an, the idea of a life full of habits. But some people were repelled by the idea of habits. Like you could tell that the whole idea of trying to form habits was repugnant to them. And I was like, it's so weird. They see the world so differently from me. So I was trying, I, I, all these things were sort of running through my head simultaneously. I had no idea how they fit together or if they were part of a pat pattern. And then one day I was just glancing down at my to-do list, which was like, you know, all messy, half things crossed off, half things that I still needed to do. And all of a sudden, this idea jumped out at me, expectations. And I realized that was at the core of all of these things. And once I saw, once I focused on expectations, and I saw that it was outer expectations and inner expectations, then everything started sliding into mm -hmm. place. All these patterns began to fit together and make sense. And so... It was like I was pondering, 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 kind of wandering around my head for months, and then suddenly it just clicked when I thought of the word expectation. And there can only be four, right? Because yes. there's only four permutations exactly. of expectations that are either yes. motivated, stimulated internally or externally. Yes, it's sort of like inner, inner, outer, outer, inner, outer, outer, inner. Those are the four. <laughs> there can only be four because those are the four combinations. Did you wake up in the middle of the night and jump up and down, or how did? <laughs> Well, you know, I was sitting there and and I well, and and part of it too was at first I was trying to make it into a, a two by two, and I couldn't get it to work out two by two because it's like how do they fit together that way? When I realized it was a Venn diagram of the overlapping circles, that showed me how they all fit together because like they 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 touch each other. So you and I are both upholders. Well, upholders are like questioners in that we both resist that we both um, meet inner expectations, mm -hmm. but. Upholders are also like obligers and that we also meet outer expectations. So it showed me the relationship of the four, how how they really intersect with each other. Um, so that was another big breakthrough is when I realized it was a Venn diagram and a diamond shape of circles. It was like, like the visual. And then you, you constructed this test, this quiz. Yes. And how many people have I mean, I'm coming up now? on a million people. That's so crazy. Soon, yeah. HappierCast.com slash quiz yeah, if you want to take the quiz. Everybody should take it if you're, if you're not sure where you fall on this. And so you have this massive data set. Yeah. And I'm interested in, in you know, as you kind of um, dig into that, are most people some combination of the two or mm. are there people that are just purely you know, in one camp, like how mm. does that look and break down? Well, from my observation, people, almost everybody really is within one core tendency. But like you say, you can kind of tip because you could be like, say my husband's a questioner, he's a questioner. Now some questioners kind of tip to upholders because upholders and questioners both meet inner expectations. But some questioners tip toward rebel because like rebels, they both mm. resist, um, outer expectations. And so it depends so your the flavor of your questionerness can take can change depending on whether you tipped one way or the other. So it's not that you're a mix but you sort of are leaning in one direction. You're tipping towards a uh a, an adjacent um tendency, but I really do think that people fit within a core tendency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's let's talk a little bit about the pros and cons mm. of each of these. I mean, to me, like if I take rebel or let's take questioner. Like mm -hmm. it's kind of easy to discern the pros. I mean, to me, tell me if I'm wrong. But a questioner who's going to ask a lot of questions, that's good because yeah. they're they want to make sure they're making the right decision, yeah. and they're gonna that's going to be based on logic and what's best for them. Yeah. But questioners, I would imagine, can also end up in some form of 
paralysis mm-hmm. as a result of not being able they yeah. just keep asking questions yeah analysis and paralysis that, like, allow that you know questions can be fear yeah. right yeah they're just afraid to move forward as long as they keep asking questions they have an excuse to not actually do anything yeah well you see this in something like exercise where it's like well i have like i don't know what the most efficient the very best thing so i'm going to do this yeah. exercise what shoe this. should i get yeah, 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 I, get, no. I feel these questions all the time which yeah. watch what's yeah. the heart you know and it's like and they're and they're going to research that forever and yes. days are going by where they could just yeah. go outside and at least go for a walk so if you're a questioner who's dealing with this or you or you're or you're around a questioner one of the things you can do is you can remind them at a certain point it's not efficient so you know because efficiency is such a deep core value for questioners remind them at some point it's better to just start exercising than to find like the mythical perfect form of exercise or it's better to just get a shoe you don't mm-hmm. need to get the perfect shoe you can also do things like sit hit um, set deadlines like i'm going to decide by friday like best guess by friday or i'm going to visit i'm going to go to these three stores where the people you, you know um i'm going to look at this i'm going to look at these choices i'm not going to go every single place mm-hmm. in the city or you could use go to a trusted authority. You could say like, okay, this person I know really uh, thinks things through, does their research. If something is good enough for this person, it's probably going to be good enough for me. I'm not going to just slavishly do what they say, but I'm going to be very guided by their judgment. I don't have to research this from the ground up. I can like take what they say and think about whether that's good enough for me. So, they, so there's ways to sort of intervene in this analysis paralysis once questioners realize that realize that they're experiencing it. Because sometimes they right. don't realize that they've fallen into this black hole of of why, 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 why. They but need- getting somebody like that to resp- respond to a boundary requires them to be responsive to external uh, external motivators, right? Well. What it what they're really responding to is their own inner sense of efficiency. So like at a certain point, you're just that. like you know what, like you're just you haven't exercised in a year. Like you you've been researching it for a long time. Like you know you really need to start exercising. Right. So why don't you say that by the end of the week you're going to pick a shoe, you're going to pick a class, you're going to pick a mechanism. And, and also what you can remind um, questioners tend to love to customize and they love to experiment on themselves. So you can say like, well, you know, this is the way people typically do it. But if that if you want to tweak it, tweak it the way you want. Or, um, you know, why don't you try it as an experiment? And then you're going to learn something about yourself. Okay, try this form of training. If it doesn't work, then you can move on to something else, but you'll have learned something about yourself. These are the kinds of things that appeal to questioners. And so they can, can get them moving past that starting point if they're getting stalled out. Interesting. Do you Did you do any probing into kind of the emotional underpinnings that create these archetypes, like the psychology behind it? Like, is it nurture? Is it nature? I think it's nature. Can these things be changed? Like, they're, they're just set in stone? I think that they're genetically hardwired. I think mm-hmm. we bring them into the world with us. I don't think they're a function of upbringing or, or, or culture or birth order or anything like that. Um, now the question about whether you can change, I think what you can do is with time and experience and wisdom, you can learn how to harness the strengths of your tendency and then offset the weaknesses and limitations because all of these tendencies have strengths and weaknesses and they're the same. It's like the strength is the weakness. So you can figure out ways to kind of hack yourself so that you don't, you're not hobbled by the weaknesses of your tendency. I think it's very, it's, is it possible to change your inner nature? I mean, people dispute that. I mm-hmm. think if it is even possible, it's extremely difficult, but it's very easy to change your circumstances. So I'm like, don't worry about like trying to change your inner nature and trying to change your fundamental tendency. If that's even possible, it would be extremely difficult and take a long time. Take the simple, easy way and just figure out a way to deal with it. Like if you're a questioner and you're stalling out, don't try to turn yourself into a different tendency. Just say like, hey man, 
decide by Friday or, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just, do, you know, here, my brother-in-law is like been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do whatever my brother-in-law does and take it from there. Like I'll start, I'll try it that way. If it doesn't work, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll have learned something, but I just need to get myself going, you know, rather than trying to fundamentally change your, you know, relationship right. to the world. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, as I was you know, kind of absorbing these ideas, it, it made me reflect back on my own path. Like I've undergone a tremendous amount of change professionally, emotionally, like a lot of change in my life over mm-hmm. the last 10, 20 years. Um, but I didn't change my core fundamental nature. Right, right. But I think what I was doing, and I think this might be something that's common to a lot of people, is I was structuring my life in accordance with a tendency that was not my mm-hmm. core. You know what I mean? I, I, yes. I put myself in a situation that didn't allow me yes. to fully embody and express the positive aspects of that core nature and that tendency. But see, this is the most important thing. Like you put your finger right on the key thing, which is we all have to construct the life that's right for us. There is no one best way. There's no magic one size fits all solution because like what works for you isn't gonna be what works mm-hmm. for me because you and I are different. And so we always have to begin, if we wanna be happier, healthier, more productive, more creative, it's like, okay, well, what kind of person are you? Where, where do you thrive? What works for you? And not to try to jam ourselves into somebody else's conception of what we should be able to do or what is the best thing to do. It's like, it doesn't matter what works for somebody else or what you should be able to do. It's like, it only matters what works for you. And sometimes it makes me sad because people will say, well, I don't like being my tendency. And I'm like, all these tendencies have huge numbers of people in them. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't lack self-control or willpower. You don't need to change who you are. You just need to set things up in a different way. And then you'll get to be able to go wherever you want to go. It's like, you don't, you don't need to change yourself. You don't have to feel bad about yourself. You just have to figure out how to work with yourself. All right, how are you guys doing? Are you settled in? Are you engaged? I think we're about halfway through at this point. Are you feeling good? Good, because the next clip is super amazing. It's with my friend Colin Houdon, at Colin Houdon on Instagram. Colin is this amazing healer. He is a physician of traditional Chinese medicine and Taoist arts. He's also an herbalist, an acupuncturist, a tea master, and the founder of Living Tea, livingtea.net, which is this enterprise whereby he travels to all these amazing places all over Asia and imports the best, most exotic living teas to uh, make them available to all of you. Uh, This clip is really powerful and it's excerpted from Colin's presentation on living in alignment with nature that he delivered during our Plant Power Ireland retreat this past summer. Uh, I think you're gonna wanna listen to the entire presentation if you missed it the first time around or you're new. To do that, it's episode 319 go back and listen to it. In the meantime, please enjoy this clip with Colin Houdon. The beginning of Chinese medicine came from these emperors or aristocrats or different people in China trying to figure out how to live forever, how to have greater virility and strength or power in the bedroom or, uh, or wisdom or insight or knowledge. And the basis out of which all the practices came Tai Chi, Qigong, meditation, herbs, different foods. They were attempting to, they were attempting to find a way to optimize health. So it was really a study of health. And 
with what with Western medicine, it's really a study of both the functioning of the body, but also of disease. And so in all my Western medicine classes, it was the emphasis was on um, pathology of the body and how to treat the disease. But it wasn't what it wasn't on how to optimize health. So we have some doctors in the room and some physicians, and they that's an ongoing dialogue that'd be an interesting one to talk about. But I ultimately came across a guy named Sun Si Miao. Like you know, you're a real geek when your hero is uh, you know somebody who lived in the six hundred or the eight hundreds and was an old Chinese guy who broke the mold by living to 104 at a time when people died at like you know 30 years old. Um, but he developed a philosophy that he calls Yang Sheng which means nourishing life. And his belief and his ideas were about how do you really nourish health? How do you, how do you optimize health? How do you find out what would be customized and optimized for an individual to be really robust and healthy and to extend their years, extend their life? Um, and so those ideas are kind of the basis of Chinese medicine. So I'm hesitant to go too deep into Chinese medicine right now because I think I'll start to lose people except for those who are really excited about it. Um, but the basic idea is that we have this concept of yin and yang, which everybody here, you know, we have the sun and the moon and male and female and day and night and on and on and on. And that they're in a constantly cycling um, process of transformation and change. That movement is constant. And life is movement. It's constantly in a state of, of change. And that it works in cycles. You know, we observe what we call the five seasons in Chinese medicine, uh, the cycles of life from early age to, you know, puberty to early adulthood, etc. Um, and the cycles throughout a day. And these ideas that different organs in the body are controlled by different elements. So, for example, the wood element corresponds to the liver and gallbladder, the fire element to the heart and small intestine, etc. And so Chinese medicine is based on balancing these five elements. And it's also about looking at what are called the eight principles. And I'll describe that really briefly because it's actually got a practical application that you can think about in terms of your life. So we look at when we look at a disease in a person, we look at is it internal and how deep in the body, or is it external out towards the surface? Uh, we look at cold and heat, which you could think of as like inflammation or as a, a lack of circulation. Is it a cold condition in the body, or is it something that's like an inflammatory, more heat condition? Um, we look at deficiency and excess. So we look at, is there a deficiency of an organ or an organ system, or is there something excessive happening? You know, a, a simplified example would be like hypothyroidism versus hyperthyroid. And then based on those, we determine if a condition is a yin condition or a yang condition. So we look at that, and then we look at conditions uh, like atmospheric, like wind, dryness, uh, fire, uh, cold, heat, dampness which is like phlegm in the body. And we look at this relationship between nature out there, the macrocosm, and, and nature inside, which is a microcosm. And we look to harmonize those so that a person's in balance. So a big part of that is living in balance with nature. It means eating foods that are truly seasonal, foods that are grown in the region where you are, 
taking herbs to help support and b balance the body. Uh, in the summertime, we have more daylight. It's a very active, young, fiery time, so it's a time of far more activity. Whereas in the middle of the winter, it's a time for sleep and introspection and quietude. And so it's also living in accordance with these cycles of nature. And that by doing that over time, you, you become harmonized between the microcosm and the macrocosm, and that constitutes uh, real health, real true health. That also means that you're living uh, in accordance with what I'd say are natural laws. And we at this point in history are so far profoundly, so far away from living in those natural laws because we have artificial light. We, we're very young in the West, so it's like more, work more, longer, all the time, nonstop. Uh, it's a very fiery, young culture. And in a lot of ways, it's out of balance. And if you look at what's going on in the world right now, um, and a lot of the dysfunction of the world, I think it's because of this, these imbalances on a collective level. So where I'd like to end and then open it up to some questions is, um, I'm working on a book which are, are, it's based on what I call the 12 vitalities or the tw 12 healths. And they're aspects of what I think it means to really live in health in a healthy way. But you can strip it down to five. So I'll leave you with five for today. Um, the first is sleep, the second diet, the third movement, the fourth meditation, and the fifth tea. So I'm just going to say a little bit about each of those. Um, uh, there's actually a great book on sleep by Ariana Huffington that was just published recently. It's fantastic. Um, my basic idea towards sleep is that different people have different needs and that we should sleep in accordance with the season. Uh, in the summer, you can stay up later and rise earlier. In the winter, I think it's really important to actually get uh, more sleep. If you go back and you look at a lot of the older Chinese, the, the writers in Chinese medicine, their ideal is to go to sleep with the sun and wake up with the sun. I think the likelihood of most of us in here going to bed at 6 p.m. in the middle of the winter is probably not very high. Um, but I do know that there have been times in my life where I really try to live closer to that, and you feel absolutely extraordinary. Um, like we were saying the other night, when we were adjusting to jet lag, and we got like 12, 13 hours of sleep one night, you just feel like a superhuman the next day. You know, you feel like you could probably fly if you focused on it or something. So I think sleep is so fundamental. In people who are having a lot of insomnia, it's indicative of something going on, either psycho-emotional or, or physiological in the body. Chinese medicine, both through needles and herbs, can be incredibly effective with uh, insomnia. And then there are occasionally anomalies where there's something else going on, like sleep apnea or, or, or what have you. Um, the other thing I want to say about sleep is it's incredibly important to be in a really calm space as you fall asleep, a really calm and positive and peaceful state. Oftentimes we're like flipping through Instagram and then we're like, okay, time to go to bed. And so you're bringing in like way more stimulation than anybody in human history has ever <laughs> taken in. And all of those are impressions. All those impressions are going in, you know, our subconscious takes in 40 million bits of information a second, whereas the conscious mind only takes in like 10 or 12 or something like that. So you're taking all this information, like stuffing it into the subconscious and then going to sleep. And that's affecting your dream state. And who knows what other, in other ways it's affecting you. So 
there's also the Dao, the Taoists have explored dreaming a lot and and lucid dreaming. I've met some people who say that there's no difference between when they go to bed at night and when they're awake in the morning. In other words, they have 24 hours and they say at night because they're not um, bound to the physical body, they're doing Tai Chi up in the clouds and who knows what, what other practices. Um, and all of the people I've talked to about those kind of practices say there's something fundamental. Tibetan Buddhism, they have a practice called uh, Dogen or Jogen, which is same thing, dream, it's dream practice, they say. All of them agree on one thing, which is that you have to get yourself into an incredibly deep meditative state before you fall asleep. Consciously. So not accidentally, I'm really tired and I fall asleep, but to do some form of meditation to quiet the mind before you go to bed. And to set the intention, I want to wake up tonight. Or I, I want to um, remember my dreams. One way to do that also is when you wake up, immediately write down your dreams and over time it will start to create an effect that you remember them more easily. Uh, we're not going to go into dream psychoanalysis right now, but um, there's a lot to be said, said there too. So that's it on sleep. There's a lot you can say about it, but I'd recommend that book uh, by Ariana Huffington. Okay. Okay. So there you go. Just listen to Rich's podcast if you haven't already. Um, so the second one is diet. And, uh, I mean, I eat a, a vegan plant-based whole foods, organic diet. I make most of my own food. So obviously I'm a believer that you can have a very healthy vegan diet. Uh, but I do think that people sometimes have to customize. I think sometimes they need to supplement with Chinese herbs, um, and, or to take sometimes some supplementation like B12 and iron and things and getting enough, uh, fats. But what I would say is to focus on organic and to eat seasonally. The earth produces the food that we need in the region we are to keep us in balance with nature and that environment and that climate. There's a reason that root vegetables grow in the middle of the wintertime, right? Or that apples grow in the fall or they're, they're ripe. Nature is very intelligent and communicative and, uh, you know, just because we can't eat mangoes in the middle of winter from Brazil or wherever doesn't mean we should live in a diet of mangoes. A true Renaissance man and honestly, one of my favorite people on planet Earth, Dan Buettner, at Blue Zones on Twitter, is a National Geographic fellow. He is a world adventurer. He is a longevity expert. And he is the New York Times bestselling author behind a couple books you've probably heard of, the first of which is The Blue Zones, which evaluated the hows and whys behind the world's longest living cultures. And his new book, The Blue Zones of Happiness, which applies the same or a similar scientific methodology to determining the factors that contribute to the world's happiest cultures. So this conversation was all about the extent to which your environment and lifestyle choices impact your happiness, what you can do to design your surroundings to stack the deck in favor of happiness, and also the impact of Dan's work on improving health and happiness in cities across the United States. Like I said, I love this man. I love this conversation. So please enjoy this brief excerpt from RRP 323 with Dan Buechner. You know, you find these kind of silly articles about the 100-year-old who ate three eggs a day and smoked cigars uh -huh. and drank liquor. 
and uh, had a six-year-old uh, Everybody girlfriend. loves those stories. Yeah, but they, they're, they're hugely misleading because a centenarian no more knows how he or she got to live to 100 than a tall man knows how he got, how, how he got to be tall. The right way to do it is you have to find a population that has achieved either highest centenarian rate, highest life expectancy, or lowest rate of middle-age mortality. Once you identify the population, then you can find out what this whole group of people do. Um, because they're, you know, about 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes. The other 80% is lifestyle and environment. So if you find a centenarian, it might just be because he or she won the genetic lottery and they can abuse their body for 100 years and still make it to 105. But that doesn't mean they have any useful lessons for us. If you want useful lessons, you have to find whole verified population and reverse engineer. And the big aha rich, the big epiphany after almost a decade was places where people are making it to 100 and still water skiing or standing on their head or doing karate, mm -hmm. it's not because they tried. It's not because at age 50 they got on a special diet or started taking a supplement or you know, started running marathons. Uh, in all cases, longevity happened to these people. It was a residue of the right environment, an environment that nudges them into doing the right things all day long. Mm -hmm. And with that insight, we went about creating a program that would help entire American cities live longer, not by trying to convince 800,000 people to change their habits and eat their veggies and get their exercise, but rather by shaping their environment so they're mindlessly and uh, relentlessly uh, nudged into doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Right, so healthy lifestyle is a byproduct of the environment, not, not a byproduct of conscious decision-making. It's an extrapolation of what's available to you at arm's length. It's the convenient choice as opposed to the more difficult or more expensive choice. That's right. So you, you have Herculean discipline. I mean, you're these ultra marathons that you do that inspire so many people. Um, they are for sure a positive force, but most people, if you look at the research, who start off and start running marathons, they're no, running, no longer running marathons in two years. Mm -hmm. People who start off on a diet, no matter how much resolve they have on day one, 90% of them are off of them on, by the seventh month. And what do you, before we move off this point, like what do you make of that? Like what do you extract from that simple fact that people have trouble sort of staying on point? Our, our minds are hardwired for novelty. So we, we crave new things. Uh, our, our attention can last only so long. Discipline is a muscle and muscles fatigue. And eventually you kind of revert to the mean of what you're doing or the baseline of what you're doing. So if you want that baseline, if you want people to perform better, eat better, move better, socialize better, have more purpose, you need to raise the baseline. You, you need to optimize the environment, which is exactly what we set out to do. And so when you go into these cities or you go to Hawaii, what are the talking points? Like how do you, you know, shift that paradigm? First of all, the cities have to want us. So instead of a riot, we don't have a sales force. Cities come to us all the time and we say, if you like, if you're sick of seeing 70% of your population overweight 
and unhealthy, uh, we have a solution. But you have to prove to us, A, you're ready for it, sort of politically. Um, B, you have to show us your leadership works well together. And C, we have to f collectively figure out a way to pay for it. Because mm -hmm. the only way you make these changes is if I can get put a full-time staff in there from three to five years. It, it, I would imagine it requires uh, the political will to invest in the long term, right? Because it's not about the next election cycle with whoever is mayor or governor or, or what have you. Like they have to think what is in the best interest of, of our electorate, of our population. And it's a solution that's not going to manifest itself overnight or in the next two years, perhaps even. It's going to require, you know, probably a large investment of capital and a long-term vision to you know, raise that mean for everybody so that eventually everybody prospers. But um, it's, not like the, it's not like a clickbaity kind of no. you know, immediate solution to what ails a particular urban environment. It's focusing on permanent or semi-permanent changes to the environment. And it also requires the political will. You know, America, we, we have this obsession with freedom. And in order to be successful, we have to come into a city where they're prepared to limit our freedoms to do unhealthy shit. That's the kind of the bottom line. I wouldn't put it that way to them. But at the end of the day, we're trying to limit their access to junk food. We're trying to limit their access to always getting in cars. We're trying to limit the occasion where they're gonna implode into their devices. So in every city, I have three teams, three squads, full-time. One squad just works with city council to adopt food policy, does that favor fruits and vegetables over junk food that works with the built environment city planner to design their their cities for humans, not just cars. You mm -hmm. can raise the physical activity level of the whole city by 30% by just making um, parks accessible, providing bike lanes, providing bus, uh, pub public transportation, provide means to walk places, to limit sprawl. And then lastly, um, we have an alcohol policy uh, bundle, which brings in the evidence-based best practices to limit access to alcohol, uh -huh. not, not cut it off altogether. The second squad goes to every restaurant, grocery store, workplace, and school with a Blue Zone certification program, which makes those environments 20% healthier, and we recognize them and drive traffic to them. And the third squad works with individuals to help individuals optimize their home so their kitchens aren't as accessible to junk food, uh, to, to optimize their social networks. So they're making three or four new friends who are plant-based eaters and who recreate with physical activity, and then to know their sense of purpose and put it to work by volunteering. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you bring all three of those together, you create the perfect storm with enough intensity, three to five years, in every single city we see obesity dropping down and happiness going up. Former American College of Cardiology president Kim Williams, MD, at Cardio Tennis on Twitter, 10S, Cardio 10S, as in Cardio Tennis, get it? He's a tennis player, uh, is one of the most inspiring, intelligent, and pioneering leaders in the growing movement to modernize how we think about, treat, avoid, and prevent our most onerous threat to human health, which is heart disease. Uh, and the impact of things like nutrition and lifestyle have on heart diseases, onset prevention, and ultimately 
performance reversal. Uh, this is an incredible conversation with a highly intelligent man. It's powerful. It's potent. I think it's important. Uh, so if you're new to the show, I encourage all of you to go back and listen to the full discourse. That's episode 325. In the, min- in the meantime, in the interim, uh, please enjoy this slice with Dr. Kim Williams. I think you said there was, I saw a quote from you, like my job is to put cardiologists out of business. That's exactly right. And you know, it, it would take a while. And I have to say that uh, it's, it's timely. It would be great if other organizations were focused on these things uh, as much as we do because, and you know, inside and outside of medicine, because uh, last year was the first time in 40 years that cardiovascular disease deaths in the country went up. Mm-hmm. And that is just something that we just can't abide by. Mm-hmm. And you know, they've you, we are, we are, we're always bragging about this decreasing curve. It's about fifty percent over forty years in cardiovascular mortality, and it's bypass surgery and statins and beta blockers and ACEs and all these medications for heart failure and decreasing sudden death because we put in defibrillators that shock people when they when they have a, a fatal arrhythmia and they come back to life and. We were so proud of all the stuff. And then the American population somehow is overcome. Finding an end run around this, no matter what you do. Exactly. Yeah. And when the CDC put those numbers out there, they said it was obesity and diabetes that's driving it. Mm. And that's a nutrition. And so it all, the fundamental uh, issue that we've been dealing with for, for the last so many years is really at the core of all we, we do. And it will uproot and, and undo any success that, that we can do uh, with devices and medications. Yeah, it's gotta be a shift in priorities and focus because it is amazing to mm-hmm. reduce by 50% the mortality rate of people who are suffering from heart disease as a result of all this amazing science and technology. Right. Uh, but if that comes at the cost of really addressing the fact that the incidence of people who are, you know, becoming patients in the first place, then right. you're you're waging a losing war. Yep. Well, right? ultimately, yeah, everyone's going to get older and they're going to pass away at some point. Wouldn't it be nice if we were uh, as healthy as possible until that happened and, and not uh, have these chronic diseases that are completely avoidable mm-hmm. um, by uh, by lifestyle? We would like to have more comparative data, but we have some. And it does say that that principle that you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet, there's some truth to that. I mean, you can mitigate a bad diet, but you can't, you're, you're going to have a bad outcome ultimately. It's not going to absolve you. And so I would say that nutrition is the most important decision that we can make. If we could uh, change one thing, it would be to have heart-healthy information coming out and, and have that be a real definition. Um, and so for the individual patient, finding out where they are and seeing what are the elements that are going to create more, more and more diseases uh, similar to what brought them to my office in the first place. And, uh, and I, I understand that this, this is not primary care, this is mm-hmm. not family practice, and that, you know, these are people who already have heart disease when they're seeing me. And so I have a little easier job because they're already motivated. The fact that they're in my office means that they're motivated to try to make some kind of change. They're expecting to come out of there with something different uh, that's gonna change their outcome. Um, Not every physician has that uh, uh, advantage, but it's something that we all should take advantage of because, you know, almost everyone has had a, you know, a family member who suffers from heart disease or has had heart disease or has sudden cardiac death. And so just trying to get them to understand that there is a relationship between your lifestyle and your outcome. 
just make that connection. If we could do that, uh, we would all be so, so much better off. Right. It's a great answer. And the final one, if you were to wake up in some strange parallel universe to find yourself the new uh, Surgeon General, <laughs> what's the first thing that you put in motion? Oh, that's a, that's a that's a a good one. Uh, you know, previous Surgeon General was a good friend of mine, Regina Benjamin, and she was very concerned about. Uh, she's African American, as you mm-hmm. might re- recall, and she was very concerned about the delivery of uh, of health care and getting health equity. I would, I would really want to continue the momentum that that she had started, in terms of getting people to understand um, the whole impact of healthcare disparities. We actually, and it's interesting that you know that it, it, it's racial segregation and educational depression and all sorts of things that led to these healthcare disparities, not mm-hmm. just genes. Okay, um, all of this can actually be improved by lifestyle. And if we could get that word out there, um, there was a wonderful um, analysis of this published in circulation in 2015 called the Regards Trial. If you look on their website and try to find the paper, it's buried in like 200 publications that they did just so so uh, good at getting stuff out there. But the Regards study was looking at um, uh, racial and ethnic um, uh, risk for stroke. And what they found is not just stroke, it's stroke, heart attack, and death, and it is related to diet, and that southern diet that the African American, mm-hmm. you know, southern meaning mm-hmm. the south side of Chicago, as far as I'm concerned, because that's what we were eating um, there. Um, that diet is so damaging that if you could just fix the nutrition, the gap in uh, healthcare disparities would change uh, almost on a dime. So there's this documentary, it's called Icarus. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this past year, 2017. It was just shortlisted for this year's Oscars, the Academy Awards. And I saw it on Netflix several months ago and it blew my mind. I just, I couldn't get it out of my awareness, of my consciousness. It's this incredibly powerful, gripping expose of Russian state-sponsored doping in Olympic sport that will forever color your perception of sport, of clean sport, of competition. Uh, After watching this movie, I was determined to get the filmmaker on the podcast to tell me more. You guys should all definitely check out this documentary. Uh, And I was able to accomplish that. So here is a slice of my conversation from episode 328 of the podcast, with Icarus director, Brian Fogel. You're seeing that the actual organizations that are in charge of enforcing the rules really are going to do nothing that is actually in the best interest of the clean athletes and only protect their own business interests. Um, and so it's it's been pretty... It's very disheartening. Disheartening because what it is doing is it's setting a a message it's sending a message to every athlete who grows up believing in the olympic ideal that you know as a kid i know that i had this or anybody who was really serious about sport you grow up and believing in this olympic dream that you're going to somehow go to the olympics and you're competing under peace and harmony and it doesn't matter whether you're russian or american or from India or from China, the world is coming together to compete. And it's all in the spirit of sport. 
And then what I've come to realize and what the film shows is what George Orwell clearly said is that sport is war without the weapons. And these Olympic Games or World Cup soccer, etc., are essentially just a place for a country to go to war with each other and assert its geopolitical and and power through sport. Right. And these athletes are in essence gladiators for their country. And the case of Russia and this program that went for 40 years in the case of the Sochi Olympics, Russia has been using its sport program to assert itself geopolitically and show dominance and power. So if you can go in and win the Olympics, you're actually showing that you're strong, mm-hmm. that you're powerful. And, and those Olympic medals are almost in place of its, of its nuclear warheads or what it can do on a geopolitical level. And, and that is what countries are viewing the Olympic Games as. It's not about a country going in and competing peacefully and in harmony of sport. It's about hegemony. It's about, it's about going in and you look at those Beijing Olympics in China. And, and Gregory has told me repeatedly that he got the idea to swap out the urine essentially from the Chinese at the Beijing Olympics. Now, these are allegations. I have no knowledge of this. But according to Gregory, according to what Gregory told me, is that the, in China, the way that the system was set up is that the athletes who were reporting for the drug testing, the Chinese athletes would go and report to essentially Chinese agents. And these agents would give these athletes clean urine. So when they went in to be tested and they, you know, and and there's an inspector there watching them essentially pee, uh, that, that these athletes had been given clean urine. And that's why uh, none of the Chinese athletes tested Mm -hmm. positive. And if you look at the Beijing Olympics, China swept the Beijing Mm -hmm. Olympics. They won more medals than any other country. But you again, you look at the geopolitics of that and what was on the line for China. It was China's coming out party to the world. It's 2008 and China is showing that not only can they pull off an Olympics and those Olympic games were incredible what they did with the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies. We've never seen anything like that in Olympic history. Not only can they pull off the Olympics, not only are they a global superpower, but they can win. And if they can win in sport and they can win in Olympics, what does this say about business? What does this say about war? What does this say about military strength, et cetera, et cetera? And you look at that and then you draw the analogy to Sochi or all the other games. You know, of course, the, you know, the, the, the 1936 games in, in Berlin was one of the, the pivotal moments in, in the rise of, of the Third Reich mm-hmm. and, and, and of German nationalism and pride. And Hitler used those games to consolidate his power. And so we're seeing the, the, the replicating that in each one of these games where a country is using these games to basically assert itself on a geopolitical level. Yeah, and there's no, there's no political will for the truth to come out because the stakes are too high and the ramifications of that would be too disruptive. But when you see a situation like you've presented in the film where the evidence is so overpowering and clear cut and you have to butt up against a lack of that will, um, you can't help but walk away from that feeling a little bit hopeless about what the future may hold because these organizations that we've specifically vested 
with the authority and the responsibility of policing this if they're not even if they're showing disinterest or they're not going to actually um, you know act on it in the way that you know seems to be the morally appropriate response then we're lost and we're only talking about the olympics we're not even talking about tennis or the nba or the nfl and you know the implications of you know unfair play on the professional level across the board well i well i think that to me um the bigger takeaway is sport is sport and sport is always going to be a game in the sense that it is sport i mean as so long as you're paying nba players 40 million dollars a year to shoot a basket with the bat, you know, uh, and, and, and so long as you're playing, you know, NFL athletes, whatever, 25, $30 million a year to play football, there is always going to be, uh, the, the pressures to win. But, but to me, the, the, the bigger issue that we have to look at and what I want people to take away from this film is looking at, are, are we, as a country, the United States or other countries willing to tolerate a foreign powers meddling in our process, in our democracy, in our, in our political affairs. And what you see in Icarus, in this film, beyond a reasonable doubt, is a country meddling into the global affairs of A, the, the Olympics and sport to cheat and to collude and to uh, and to create a fraud and b the analogy can clearly be drawn into our current u.s political climate and the and the meddling into our election of okay if a country like russia was willing to do this to win medals what else are they willing to do how far are they willing mm -hmm. to go and what we're seeing is no matter how much evidence is put forward which we see in the film where not only has this evidence been put forward, it's all been proven. And yet you still have the leaders of the Olympics and, 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 and Putin and Russia and WADA literally standing in the face of this evidence trying to deny that this actually happened. And we're seeing the same thing happen in, our, in the current U.S. Uh, political situation where no matter how much evidence is being put forward about about election tampering and meddling we're still getting naysayers we're still getting people going this didn't happen and i think we have to as a country and a world go wait what are we willing to tolerate meaning if we're willing to tolerate this in sport well i guess we're willing to tolerate this in terms of our own uh, election in terms of our own political process we're willing to allow a foreign power to come in and meddle in our affairs and have that meddling go unpunished and that to me is kind of a, the takeaway of icarus that is incredibly upsetting where all of this evidence is presented and you still have the president of russia going not only did this not happen i don't even remember the guy's name who who brought all this evidence forward and not only do we know that this is not true we just know it's an outright lie and these are the 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 takeaways for me from from the film that uh that that are frightening 
Doctors Aisha and Dean Sherze at Team Sherze on Twitter, S-H-E-R-Z-A-I, are the husband-wife neurology team that serve as co-directors of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center. Alzheimer's, huge problem, gigantic disease that affects millions and millions of people. Well, it's traditionally been defined as a life sentence, a life sentence without cure. But according to Team Sherze, in one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had, uh, Alzheimer's is not a genetic inevitability. A diagnosis does not have to come with a death sentence. In fact, through simple diet and lifestyle changes alone, 90% of all Alzheimer's cases can be prevented. Think about that for a minute. So here's Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherze on the hows and the whys from RRP 330. For many Americans, it's worse than death to know that you're having Alzheimer's. And, and the approach from the medical field is actually even worse. It, you have 20 minutes with a patient. Mm-hmm. Hi, how are you doing? How is it going? You do the cursory check of the heart, tapping the knee. And then at the you know, last five minutes, you have Alzheimer's and this is what you have and this is what you have to do. And here are some pills. And the pills don't change the progression of the disease. They just help you with the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, uh, this is a process that's going to increase, accelerate every family. Every family in America will be affected by it, either directly or indirectly. Mm-hmm. And we need to do some, something to kind of either curb it or have a new approach to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one of the most important things we can do, and it started, it yeah, has started, it started yes. is to say the way we're doing medicine right now is not healthcare. It is important. Sick care is important. When a person comes with an infection, they need a medicine. When a person comes with a blood pressure of 200, you're not gonna say, go eat you know, this. That's, mm-hmm. that's a long-term thing. You have to take your medicine. That's sick care, it's important. But there's another side, which is healthcare, which has to be incentivized. There has to be a mechanism. People can't just rely on goodwill where I'm gonna go at nights to clinics or this or that or to churches. There has to be a system created where we can prevent. But you know what? That system, when it's created, will reduce the cost of healthcare by 80 to 90% by itself. That's a pretty staggering statistic. Yeah. So we just have to make the choice as a, as a society. Uh, and even the choice, you know, we get caught up in the po- politics of right, left. No, once there's enough information that overwhelms and, and, and everybody sees the benefit in this for their kids. I mean, we don't, well, this book is not about just Alzheimer's end of life. I mean, our kids are overwhelmed by sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we tell them they have ADHD. Well, they might, but a great proportion just have a lot of sugar. <laughs> yeah, there's no question about yeah. that. And, and also, you know, I want to get back to the nutrition piece in a minute. But, you know, what I took away from it is that it's a book about how to live your life now so that you don't have to deal with this. When, Like if you're you could read this book as a 20 year old and say, well, I want I want to take care of my brain and this is the way to do it because those amyloids and all this sort of stuff that goes into creating, you know, the dementia and the Alzheimer's, this is going on all the time, right? Yeah. So it doesn't just suddenly strike you at age 65, like yeah. it's just like heart disease, like you're working on this your whole life and mm-hmm. it has to do with the diet and the lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So on the nutrition piece, so as, just so we're totally clear, as scientists who have, uh, you know, studied this disease for a long time and treated a lot of people, you're sold on the whole food plant-based diet. 
this is the this is the way to go. Absolutely. Yes. As a scientist, we say to the best of our knowledge today. Mm-hmm. I, I, that to me is the most powerful, the most humble statement in English language. I think forced certainty is the cause of a lot of our conflicts. Science is open to change. I mean, tomorrow if they say if you eat a steak, I'm not going to because of other reasons. But I would say okay. Sure. I doubt that it's going to come, come. but to that, right now, the data is just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of times in discussions, when any discussion, they fail you by, by falsely holding you to absolutes, saying, but there's not cause and effect. Science cannot create cause and effect. Mm-hmm. It can create strong correlations, very strong. Even now, we can't create cause and effect with cigarettes because you can always talk your way out of it. You know, even if you give people, even if it was ethical, but there's a tremendous amount of data that a plant, whole food plant-based diet is overwhelmingly protective. Yeah. Is there any uh, positive benefit with respect to brain health for, is there any argument that there's something healthy about eating meat when it comes to cognitive health? Like, is, well, yeah. Oh, Go ahead, sorry. So n- nutrition science is, um, you know, has its flaws. Um, the way we're recording diet right now is through food frequency questionnaires or diet uh, food diaries and things of that nature. Um, and, um, you know, it has its strengths when you look at the different components of meat, the saturated fats and the animal proteins, you know, whether it's animal studies or human studies, they're not good. I mean, the data over and over comes back and shows us that saturated fat actually causes those plaques in the arteries in the brain that supply oxygen and nutrition to the different areas of the brain, and they get clogged when saturated fat is very high in your diet. Plus inflammation and everything else. Plus inflammation, plus affecting glucose metabolism as well. And on the contrary, so in comparison to you know other types of fats, such as polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated, they're actually beneficial. The most important element of the Mediterranean diet that everybody's been talking about for heart health and for brain health are those, you know, poly and monounsaturated fats, and they come from plants. So, you know, when you look at different um, different comparisons of whether they're the types of fats that you eat or the antioxidants that you get from plants, it's it's quite clear. And, you know, when you look at meat, I mean, other than fat and protein, it doesn't have anything else. It doesn't have any fiber. And some of the minerals that are there, they're just minimal. So you get more benefit from eating a whole food plant-based diet. Uh-huh. Um, and, and many studies, we did four reviews, mm-hmm. which is these collecting all the papers and then coming up with what those said, so which is the most painful kind of research. And, and on nutrition and Parkinson's, yes. nutrition and stroke and nutrition and dementia, and the thing that stood out the most was synergy. Absolutely. So these micronutrients, whether they're vitamins or minerals, they don't work um, alone. Um, you know, it's, it's actually the combination and the levels of the different kinds of micronutrients that matter, and they synergize each other's availability. So, and that makes sense. And that's why, you know, hundreds of studies on, say, for example, vitamin E and brain health or vitamin C and Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease have come back with no results, with no particular correlation and effect. But, and, and when you eat it in a whole form, when you eat it in a, you know, plant form, all of these micronutrients are well balanced and they're bound to other macronutrients. They're bound to the fiber as well, which increases their bioavailability. You know, decades of data that show that a whole food, which is unprocessed, plant-based diet, low mm-hmm. in sugar, 
seems to be the best dietary pattern for, for the brain. And it affects all those processes that we just talked about, lowering inflammation, uh, managing uh, glucose metabolism, managing lipid metabolism, providing the best source of macro and micronutrients for the brain to thrive, to grow, mm -hmm. to heal itself. And you know, study after study um, shows the same thing over and over again. And by just looking at populations, you know, the seven-day Adventist population, um, you rarely see dementia. And the ones that do have dementia either have it very late in life or they have had other uncontrolled risk factors in their life. Last but certainly not least is Tim Ferriss, because this episode uh, is well on its way to becoming one of the most popular and downloaded episodes that I've ever done. Uh, Tim is a relentless experimenter. He is a virtuoso of deconstruction. He's a guy who has spent the better part of his entire adult life studying mastery and sharing what he has learned on his wildly popular blog, his string of four consecutive number one New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling books, including his brand new offering, Tribe of Mentors, as well as his podcast, which is one of the top shows in the world with over 200 million downloads. But who is the real Tim Ferriss? Despite the fact that I have been enjoying this guy's content for many years, I never really felt like I knew the answer to that question, and I wanted to know more. So this conversation gave me the opportunity to find out. I think we're all on different journeys. There are shared traits, perhaps, for many of us. And uh, we hit different legs in different portions of our lives. So for some people, they start off, say, in the heart or in the gut and then move to the head later because mm -hmm. they need to learn to manage finances or whatever it might That's be. That's me. Right? Yeah. And then you have other people. Uh, certainly I would count myself among those people who for whatever reason or a combination of reasons develop a lot of armor really early on. Uh, as I did in childhood, I had some reasonably uh, bad things happen to me as a kid that I don't really want to get into specifics over, but uh, that encapsulates a lot for a lot of people and put on this incredible armor to protect myself <clears throat> and only realized in the last few years that and when you put on really effective armor, you do keep things out, but you also keep a lot in. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were uh, certain ways that I had handicapped myself very deliberately viewing emotion as a weakness viewing attachment emotional attachment in particular as a weakness uh, my priority for a very long time was to simply hone myself as a as an instrument of competition basically mm -hmm. and to use that to validate myself to prove my worth and anything that detracted from that or remotely made me vulnerable, I viewed as something that should be disposed of. So that led me to the pro and con list, to the hyper-analytical, to the as close as I could manage Spock-like approach with a high pain tolerance to uh, tackling different things in life. And that is just another way of accepting partial completeness, which ironically I wrote about in the four hour body, which is arguably mm -hmm. the most 
I'm not going to say clinical. That makes it sound really dry. It's a, I think it's a fun book, but it's very analytical right. and very quantified. And I talk about how people should question certain assumptions they've made about what they can or cannot do, such as, well, my, my parents are fat. I'm fat. That's just the way it is. And they accept that as a partial completeness and they never challenge that. But I myself never even thought of uh, my long-standing lack of interest in emotion as a gap. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, like, probably as a strength. Like I, yeah. I, you know, from what I've heard in, in how you talk about your childhood, there's a lot of similarities with my childhood. Um, I was somebody who was a very awkward kid, a, a very much a loner, you know, not a, not by any stretch of the imagination, anybody who looked like they were going to be an athlete, you know, eye patch, headgear, last kid picked for kickball, um, and, and really had a lot of difficulty connecting with friends and classmates. And as a result, spent a lot of time alone. Then I discovered swimming. And I, f and I feel like I'm interested in talking to you a little bit about this. I feel like the relationship that I developed with that sport is similar to the relationship that you developed with wrestling at that time, because I approached it as it was the first thing that I was actually good at, you know, and it was kind of this safe place away from school. And I realized very early and often that the more I put into it, the better I got. So that equation of um, being diligent and being devoted and working hard had very practical real world results that were advancing my life in a very good way. But it was also a place where I could go and not have to deal. It was, it was like a, not only a safe place, but a, a place away where I could just escape. So in some respects, I think I had a compulsive, obsessive, addictive relationship with it. And it was a means of not having to deal with some emotional stuff that I was going through. But when you become successful, when it's moving you forward, it's, much more of a reason to continue to not look at that other aspect of your life because it's serving you. Yeah, there's uh, there's a huge amount of overlap. So wrestling for me, as a as someone born premature, I was very very small until sixth grade. I mean, just got uh, constantly on a daily basis <laughs> kicked around. <laughs> I was uh -huh. so small. I was such a small kid. Uh, I would, I would generally not even opt to go out to recess because that was just like going out into the terrible, the, the open sky pen at like a, a federal prison. I mean, I right. was, that was a dangerous place for me to be. I would just get dragged around and punched and so on. So I'd read books uh, and that was the, the cover that I used to, to sit on the step right outside of the door that went out to recess and wrestling which came to me really by luck because I was hyperactive and my mom was told by other moms that kid wrestling would be a good way to drain my batteries. Mm -hmm. So I was put into wrestling and then I think both of us realized that it was the one sport since it was weight class based <laughs> that I had access to where I could end up being matched against another equally puny nerdy kid and at least one of us got to win. <laughs> right. uh -huh. uh, but to underscore something you said, which I think is very true for me as well, is that <clears throat> particularly at that age, but for a long time in school, at least you have fairly siloed areas of life. I mean, you have academics, 
and it's easy to measure. You do well, or you do poorly. And then you have certain sports, particularly if it's an individual sport where you feel like you have some, this is another reason I gravitated towards wrestling, a semblance of control. There's so right. many things you can't control, but part of the reason I always ended up leaning towards individual sports, even though I did play soccer for a short period of time, I played football for one season, which I did not like for a host of reasons. And wrestling on the other hand the all the credit or all the blame was on you lies on you yeah i mean and swimming even more so it's, yeah it's the ultimate in self-determinatism yeah determinism right it's yeah. just you against the clock i mean you're racing against somebody else i mean in wrestling you have your opponent you have to anticipate what yeah. he's going to do and so that's a variable that's that, right. that you don't have in a sport like track and field or swimming but right. but it's very much that idea of like you get out what you put into it and there's that yeah. equation right and you can like immerse yourself in that and that becomes yeah. an identity no and i liked the controlling of variables to the extent possible and as you get older, at least just projecting forward, if we fast forward the film and get into 20s, 30s, certainly 40s now, where more and more of my friends have passed away, right? And the decisions you make in your personal life absolutely bleed over and affect other parts of your life. Mm -hmm. And the decisions you make in one area that used to be, at least conceptually as a kid, really walled off and siloed bleed over into every other. And I think that many of our strengths in excess bec uh, become or create glaring weaknesses. Yeah, for sure. So for me, it was this realization and we could really dig into some of the uh, tools that led to this realization, including uh, supervised use of psychedelics that led me to the conclusion that uh, my, my current state of being was not only unsustainable in a lot of ways, but really not serving me. Mm -hmm. And that if I wanted to not just tolerate myself, which I think at best is what I did for most of my life, then I had to rewire quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it and it involved going back and contending with some really old things. And that many of the seemingly disparate behavioral challenges or short-temperedness or impatience with myself or berating myself in my own head or fill in the blank could be 20 or 30 things that I tended to view as inexplicable separate behaviors were in fact all easily traced back to a handful of things mm -hmm. that I protect. I. I think by necessity protected myself against or felt the need to protect myself against early on by walling off myself emotionally. All right, we did it. That's it for 2017. It's officially in the rear view. It's all about 18 from now on out, you guys. Hope you enjoyed that. If you would like to support this show and my work, just share it with your friends and on social media. Simple. Leave a review on iTunes. And of course, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Super important and very, very helpful. 
We also have a Patreon set up if you would like to support us financially. I will be scheduling an Ask Me Anything session, a video AMA very soon, uh, and that is exclusive content for contributors on Patreon only. To find out more, just click on the Patreon banner ad on any episode page at richroll.com. Final reminder that our meal planner is on sale through midnight January 6th, $20 off the annual fee. Uh, when you use the promo code POWER20, at checkout. It's an insane deal for just 80 bucks for an entire year. You will be supported with thousands of plant-based recipes, personalized uh, grocery lists, expert food coaches available seven days a week, uh, even grocery delivery in over 80 US markets. Really proud of this product. Very helpful uh, tool in your toolkit to make 2018 your healthiest year ever. To learn more, go to meals.richroll.com or just click on Meal Planner at the top there on any page on my website. Uh, I want to thank everybody who has helped put on this show and actually all shows throughout 2017. Jason Camiolo, my right-hand man throughout this whole process for all his uh, great work on audio engineering, production, interstitial music, the show notes, the WordPress page. He's really my dude. Uh, Sean Patterson, who has worked tremendously hard on all of the graphics for the show, giving it the look, the feel, the aesthetic, and theme music, as always, by my boys from Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. 2017 was the best year ever for me, and I'm excited about 2018. I think it's going to be uh, extraordinary, and my hope, my aspiration for you is that uh, it will be everything you aspire it to be, and I'm here as a resource to help you achieve that. See you guys back here soon. Until then, be well. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.